The following podcast contains explicit language and movie spoilers. You've been warned. No, seriously, there, there's spoilers and, and foul language. Yeah. Welcome to $20 Ticket, where we tell you how much we would pay to watch Forrest Gump. My name is Kerwin, and joining me today is Jason. What's up, Jason? Not much about you. I'm chilling, man. Uh, what are you drinking today? A uh, nice, refreshing mimosa this oh, time. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, also joining us today is Mugga. How you doing, Mugs? Special K, what's going on? I'm great. What are you drinking today? I also have a mimosa. I was suckered into it. All right, two for two. Also joining us today is Holly. Holly, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm also doing well. What are you drinking? I am drinking a mimosa, and I'm the one who pressured all of you into drinking yeah, them. Yeah, thank you for the mimosas. You're She's the welcome. one that is sponsoring this. Alcoholism <laughs> is an activity. Brought to you by 14 hand- It's 10.30 in the morning, wine. by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's very early. And finally joining us today is TJ. What's up, TJ? Hi, Karen. How's it going? I'm chilling, man. What are you drinking? Just a little OJ. What else is in it? Maybe some champagne. Okay, <laughs> cool. Five, five alcoholics today. Five for five. So today we're reviewing Forrest Gump, released July 6, 1994, produced by Wendy Feinerman Productions and distributed by Paramount Pictures. It stars Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, Michael T. Williamson, and Sally Field. It's written by Eric Roth, who also wrote Ali, Munich, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and A Star is Born, and directed by Robert Zemeckis, who's known for the Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Welcome to Marwin. Forrest Gump was taught from an early age not to let anyone treat him as less than. With this advice, his life's journey becomes greater than anyone could have possibly imagined, making his way through the American 20th century's most pivotal moments. So before we get into behind the scenes, Mugga, why don't you hit us with the financials? So this movie only cost around $55 million to make, which I thought was really cheap. I mean, also it was done in 1994, but uh, it made $678 million total. $330 uh, domestic, $348 foreign. Um, opening weekend was $24 million. It was ranked number one. Um, some of the movies at the time that was in theaters was True Lies, The Client, Angels in the Outfield, Speed, and Schindler's List. That was on like his 32nd week. But here's one that I also was interested in. The Lion King was also on the same time. And I think it fought a lot with The Lion King for money. However, if you do the math, 678 minus the 55, it comes out to around $623 million that it made. But there are some controversy on whether the film was successful or whatnot, because here's some interesting facts. I guess Zemeckis and Hanks didn't have a fee. They'd rather take a percentage of the film. So they end up each getting roughly around $40 million. And because of that, the original writer only got, I think at the beginning, 350000 to write this. And he was supposed to get some money, but they claimed that after production, promotion, and all that stuff, and paying Hanks and uh, Zemeckis, that there was no money left over. So they actually said, yeah, it was like a weird legal battle that happened. Um, they ended up giving him like a seven-figure uh, contract afterwards for a sequel to Forrest Gump, which we'll get into, which was never made. So he got some money, but originally, he, the original writer that wrote the novel, which we'll get into, didn't receive any money for this other than the three fifty that they first bought. It from. Yeah, but I think Hanks was kind of smart because he took three percent of the gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the author the was trying author to take was trying to get three percent of the net. Yeah, yeah. So that's where Hanks kind of did it right too. Yeah, yeah. It's weird too because on the production, I read that the film was almost days away of being canceled at one point. Yeah, and Zemeckis and Hanks put up their own money like two days before the the studio was going to cancel it. Yeah, to keep the the movie going because they believed in it so much. And the scene that they actually funded, I read, was the running scene of him running cross country, which yep. is like one of the most iconic scenes of the film. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, 55 million crewing back is that was pretty cheap back then. I mean, but you're not paying your director and your star, you know, in the movie. I mean, I think, but yeah, 55 million, but I mean, 
obviously if you add the 80 million on top of that now it's a little more but yeah, yeah and then that return too is huge like yeah. in the 90s that's over half a billion yeah. you know and you don't even see a lot of you know action movies during that time make that much money right so when we look at the review i'm gonna start with imdb on imdb it got an 8.8 .8 out of 10 so pretty good score an 88 percent with a million and a half reviews it's kind of cool too on imdb it breaks it down by demo so people that are under the age of 18 actually rank at a nine on average, and people over the age of 45 rank it at 8.4. I don't know why I thought that was kind of interesting. I feel like kids under 18 are not gonna appreciate this as much as maybe right. people that are a little bit older just because they know more of the history. I thought that was kind of interesting. And then Rotten Tomatoes, um, Tomato Meter has it at 73% at 7.3 out of 10 with 91 reviews. It's kind of low to me on the audience. It's a 95% with a 4.1 out of five rating um, with over a million reviews. So it looks like the audience liked it a lot more. I think I kind of agree with the audience. What do you guys think? I love this movie, so I, I agree. Yeah. I agree, and actually I read that the critics were really split. Like either people really liked this movie or they really hated it. Or the same thing. I think it's I, I think it's interesting, the, the demographic thing that you brought up because I feel like this movie caters to baby boomers. Like I feel like the soundtrack, I feel like everything going on with this movie, the nostalgia, like there are people that watch this and movie. And all the events, right? Yeah, but, and all yeah. the events. Like you can remember where you were when JFK was shot or things like that. Now I'm now talking it out and saying it out loud. I can see why they're maybe a little bit more judgmental of it. But people under 18, that's funny. Yeah, I thought that was kind of odd that they ranked a little bit higher just because um, when I was younger, this this movie, I, mean, I guess it still is pretty much played like almost every other weekend on some cable channel. But I feel like, you know, like you were saying, baby boomers would appreciate it a lot more just because they were, you know, most of them were there during some of these events. So right. I thought that was kind of interesting. And as it, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it with the experience part, but like as a younger guy, like this didn't really resonate with me. Like I wasn't really a fan of this movie when I was a teenager. So it's interesting that teens would rank this higher. I was gonna say, I think this movie came out in 94, right? Yeah, 94. So we were like, Kerwin and I, I'm saying we, uh, were like five and a half, six. The rest of you were 17. I was in junior high, I was you in seventh grade. Were, you were graduating college, Mugga. Okay. Um, but I think the reason why I love this movie so much is one, every time you watch it, you get something different from it or you pick something else up. But two, this is the first movie that I can remember that my parents actually like both agreed upon and the Academy Awards like agreed upon as well. My mom always used to say like if it's nominated for Academy Award, it's probably not. See, my parents would always say the same movie. thing. Like, it's not an entertaining movie. Yeah. But I remember my mom and dad watching it, and they have very opposite tastes in Movies. entertainment, yeah. like in what's funny or what's entertaining. But I remember like watching it with them, and both of them walking away from being it and being like, "Damn, like that was a good movie." So I think that's why I love it so much. And every time I watch it, I get something um, else. One thing I want to bring up to before we get into behind the scenes: Did you guys know that this was obviously release date was July sixth in ninety four? Later on that year. At a time, I don't know what month or whatever, but Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Shawshank, and Jurassic Park were all in theaters. However, Jurassic Park was on its 72nd week, yeah. so I don't think that's really fair, but that was an interesting year then for movies. I mean, those are three, I don't want to say iconic, but they are iconic movies, you know? Well, yeah. let's just say all four, I mean, I guess, you know? But I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, those are four movies that, if they're separate, maybe they all win Best Picture each year, but only one could win it that year. I mean, Jurassic Park was the year before that, but I don't know, I thought that was really interesting because that's like a loaded year of movies, I think. But I was, think, I was thinking that too, like looking at the Academy Award nominations and seeing where it, where Forrest Gump kind of panned out. And I'm like, dang, that's a crazy good year for movies. But then I was looking at, you know, because this they, it technically came out in 94, but it was the 95 Academy Awards. But then I was looking at like the 94 nominees and then the 96 nominees. And it was just a really good time for movies. Like every year there was something that was just like, oh, wow, like that came out that year. So we'll get into it. But Forrest Gump did win Best Picture, which was some controversy 
see because a lot of people thought it should have gone to Pulp Fiction. Most people are you Shawshank though. I like Shawshank better than both of them, but yeah, I, I love wow. Forrest Gump, but Shawshank is legendary. I mean, I, I could watch that movie every day, but yeah, but Pulp Fiction, you got to admit, is kind of like revolutionary. It is, Way and I, I, I'm time. not saying I dislike it, but I don't even think it's one of Tarantino's top three films. Which we're not going to get into that review, but I mean, I, I don't know. I, I like it's all these better podcast. than yeah than Pulp Fiction. But. Could be for its time. Could be for its time. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Mugga, why don't you uh, start us off with some behind the scenes? So there is a lot to this movie. Um, I'm just going to kind of go down. You guys, feel free to jump in. This film was not written by uh, Eric Roth originally. This film is based on a 1986 novel by a guy named Winston Groom. It was written by Groom and then sold to Warner Brothers. And then that's where it was rewritten by Eric Roth and then eventually sold to Paramount, where Groom found out about this through the media. He wasn't actually even told this. Do you guys know that? Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, like he found it the media or something like that. That's I think a some. Shady. Yeah, so. Wow. It, it's kind of like a stab in the back. Yeah, on top of the fact that um, they did not pay him for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Both the movie and the novel center around the Marin character, which is Forrest Gump. However, um, the movie skips after like the 11th chapter. I'm not a knowledgeable about the novel at all. If you guys want to feel free to chime in. But it does go after the 11th chapter to like Bubba Gump Shrimp along with Forrest Jr. And because it skips all around, they were able to add parts such as like the leg braces and him running across America. I guess that was not in the original novel, which is a big part of the movie, like his right. Legs and everything. Another change from the novel was his experience at the University of Alabama. He failed gym class, which I do not understand how. He's a football star and he fails gym class and craft class, but excelled in advanced physics, which kind of weird. Did you guys know about that? No. Nothing about that. Um, I believe he was also supposed to be, now get this, an astronaut, professional wrestler, and a chess player in the actual novel. Has anyone ever read the novel? No. No. Okay. no so, so wait, did they replace chess with ping pong or he was both? So I don't know. I don't, I mean, I've seen the movie a million times. Both. I think from the book reviews that I read, because I'm a bad English major here, but in the novel, he's, you know, 6'6", 242. So I think the author originally wanted somebody like John Goodman, like that was his ideal person to play Forrest Gump. Um, and then we have, you know, felt Tom Hanks, but he was, he was a lot more aggressive. He was a lot more, I guess, I don't know how to say this politely, but he was a little bit more socially unaware as far as like his use of aggressive language or, you know, racial slurs and things like that. He was a lot more like sexual in the book as well. He's, he's more brief. Forrest Gump was. Yeah. Forrest Gump was the most Jenny. purest guy that so loses his virginity was, until like, yeah, the Tom true. Hanks version is much more. The Tom Hanks is much more wholesome, but the, yeah. in the book version, like when he goes to the university of Alabama, him and Jenny reunite and that's when his like sexual awakening starts. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so the book is a little, the book is a lot different, whereas Jenny is a more sympathetic character and Forrest is much more of the, the dumb idiot that kind of passes through life. I mean, he's kind of like that in the movie. I I just can't imagine if John Goodman actually was Forrest. I mean, I think Hanks did a a really great job and I think obviously now it's been so many years we can't picture anyone else other than Tom Hanks doing that role, but. I I read somewhere that the line where Gary Sinise's character, Lieutenant Dan, says the day you're a shrimp boat captain is the day I'm an astronaut. That is to pay some sort of connection to the novel. Did you guys read that or am I just looking too far into it? No, so I, the what I read is that at the end of the movie he has the um, alloy, titanium alloy, titanium alloy that they use in the spaceships and then it was also like funny because he was an astronaut in Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks like two years later so that was that was a big connection to it but I I guess I mean I can see that because he did go in the book to space was a male ape named Sue wow I gotta read this book I know Um, (laughs) so Picking back off what Holly says, the original writer pictured someone like John Goodman to play. So what I'm reading or what I'm looked up, 
all of the cast and the director were not the first choices. Let's just first get into the director. Zemeckis was not the first choice. Terry Gillen, um, done a bunch of movies. One that he's majorly known for is 12 Monkeys. I guess he was originally offered it, turned down the film, and then it was thought or rumors about Barry Sonnefeld, but he actually went on to do Adam's Family Values, and then that's when it eventually went to Zemeckis. So I thought that was interesting, which I love Zemeckis and how he did this movie. I'm a fan of all of his other movies. Um, for the casting, other than, I think, Haley Joel Osmond, is that how you say it? Osmond? Osmond, uh, yeah. Yeah. He was the only guy that like they originally wanted at the first. Everyone else is like, I guess, the second or the third choice. So congratulations. You got a five-year-old yeah. on the first um, round. So just going off for Forrest Gump, um, it was originally supposed to go to John Travolta. He declined. <laughs> and then they thought of doing Bill Murray, Chevy Chase. And I read a couple parts of Sean Penn. I don't know your guys' thoughts on that. No, yeah, there's, I, there's another guy. I, th- I think Sean Penn was the second choice. Oh, was he? Yeah, he was actually so we're, being really considered. Were Bill Murray and Chevy Chase just like, hey, if we can't get John Travolta, we'll get those guys? I know it was offered to John Travolta and he no, declined there's it. No, an- there's another guy that they really wanted. Sorry. Yeah. And I know that the director, not the director, I'm sorry, the writer, he actually wanted John Goodman, felt it was right. going to be better. But um, eventually, I guess Hanks read the script and after an hour of reading it, he wanted to sign on right away. Like he was just totally bought in. Jenny, only, His only Cur- stipulation was that it was historically accurate, he said. Yeah, Because he be, didn't yeah. even read the entire thing. Jenny Curran. Now, it's funny that I'm going to say Curran. Do you guys know why her name is Curran? They don't say it one time in the movie, but when Forrest Gump gets the mail back, her actual name is on there. That's the only time you're going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny was actually played by Robin Wright. And uh, there was three actresses prior to her that I think were considered Jodie Foster, uh, Nicole Kidman and Demi Moore, which I'm glad none of them got that. I didn't. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think she did a great job. I, 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 I don't know if I could picture any of them now can you not picture because we've seen this movie so many times and it's been around for that long or just i think that's why because because it is an older movie and it's kind of established that yo you know robin wright is jenny i think the other ones might have done a fine performance but i think i don't know just just something about it just doesn't feel right just imagine (laughs) to me more as jenny i I just i cannot like the other jenny foster i could kind of see really yeah when did G.I. Jane She's, come out? Is this right before or after? Uh, I'm not sure, but that, that's what I'm saying. Like Demi Moore took on these like super like I think of like Ghost and I think of Striptease. Sorry, mom. Yeah, G.I. Um, Jane was sorry. Ninety-seven. Uh, Ninety-seven. So, so it was after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I just I can't imagine her in like a Jenny role. I don't know. Especially now after seeing uh, House of Cards when she's Claire oh, Underwood. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I was, I was about two weeks ago that I found out that, that was, this was Jenny. I was <laughs> like, two weeks ago, years old. <laughs> I was like, what the heck? No, so, she was also in The Princess Bride, which is one of my favorite movies, which you guys should She's do. also in Moneyball. She's also Wonder Woman's aunt. You're right. Yeah. You are right. Robin Wright. (laughs) All right. um, Moving on. So Lieutenant Dan, the other main character, is played by Gary Sinise. Kind of coincidentally, right after this movie, they would do two more movies. Anyone know those two movies where Gary Sinise and Tom Hanks were together? Apollo 13. Apollo 13. And The Green Mile. The Green Mile. The Green Mile. Bubba. Okay. This was... uh, an interesting role. This was actually offered to three other people prior to... Now, Curran, help me out. How do you say his name? Mike... Michael T. Michael Washington. T. Or Williamson. Williamson, okay. Michael T. Um, prior to him getting it, there was David Allen Greer, Ice Cube, and David Chappelle, which pretty well-known actors. Ice Cube was, I think, a big hit at the time. He had just got done doing, um, what was it? Uh, well, Friday, Friday. Boys in the Hood. He like wrote Friday. <laughs> yeah, Boys in the Hood. Um, David Chappelle, I think to this day, still regrets turning down the role. He thought the movie was going to be unsuccessful. I never heard why David Allen Greer didn't want to do it. But I mean, I think it's just on the lines of they didn't want to play a character like that at the time. Mm. I also read that Tupac was considered for this role. 
So, so there we go. End note. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> real quiet. I was also Sorry, reading that uh, Michael T. Williamson had a huge, like a lot of trouble trying to get roles after this. Yeah. Yeah, because they thought his lip was actually like that. Yeah, so he, when he went on Letterman uh, shortly after, or a little bit after this film, he had to go on there and really tell everyone, including studio people, everyone, hey, it was just a prosthetic. It was just an effect to make my, li- my lip look that big. It really wasn't because he wasn't getting any kind of work. Um, but then he went on to do Heat and Con Air. So thank God that he uh, went on Letterman and let everyone know that that was not real. God. <laughs> we, we would you have had got to Con, Air. Con Air on there? Yeah. Okay. Um, moving on. Uh, the role to play Mrs. Gump. This was an interesting one. Sally Field played uh, Mrs. Gump, which is ironic because obviously it's Forrest's mom. And she is actually in real life only 10 years older than Hank. Um, uh, Hank, sorry. Um, I believe that they were also in another movie together prior to this where they were lovers or she was interested in him or something like that. Do you know the name of the movie? I just read that they played in a movie prior to that where they were like interested in each other where this one she's playing his mom. But I thought she did a great job, you know. I thought it, I thought this is I mean, she can do no wrong. She can do no wrong and I absolutely will agree with this. I just think from a casting decision this is actually one of my trash. Really? I really? Just, I don't like I think Ugh, let's get into uh, it let's now. let's save that for trash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. it's just I, I don't think it was a good casting. I love Sally Field. Like, I don't want you to me. talk to me for the rest of this thing. <laughs> I won't she, make eye contact. She gave but. us so many lines. I mean, she taught us so much about <laughs> life, like box of chocolates and everything. All right, anyways, moving on. And then obviously, Forrest Jr. was uh, Haley Joel Osment, and he plays Forrest Jr. I guess the casting director noticed him in a Pizza Hut commercial, and then he nailed the role. And then basically, that's where you have the movie. Um, as far as filming the movie, it only took place. I'm sorry, they only filmed it for four, uh, four or five months. It started in August that year, and then ended in December. Um, most filming took place in Virginia, South and North Carolina, which I thought was interesting. This takes place in Vietnam, Alabama and other places where they never went. Um, when you see the lighthouse, Vietnam, the bench scene along with others, all those are filmed in South and North Carolina. Uh, most of the college scenes were actually filmed at USC, not at the University of Alabama. And uh, they did do takes in Utah, Maine, Arizona, and Montana, especially at Glacier Point. And those were the running scenes where you guys see Tom Hanks running, which secretly is not Tom Hanks. Did you guys know that? He didn't like running. Oh, so yeah, it was his, his brother. brother, Jim Hanks, where you see it. Yeah, But he funded the running scenes. Yeah, he, did, yeah, he, did, he, he wanted in there. He just didn't want to run. Okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah and actually all the long shots that there was yeah. running, it was always his brother. Basically, we all know, we've seen the movie, that there are some visual effects. The visual effects were done by a guy named Ken Ralston and his team at ILM. I can break it down to about five things where you noticeably see the CGI. Obviously, it was impossible for him to meet the dead people, JFK, Lyndon Johnson, and so on. So they filmed Hanks on a blue screen uh, with markers to be in the correct location so he would line up with the original footage and then they would just use voiceover actors along with special effects to do the lip movements. Yeah. Did you guys know that? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. The other thing that I kind of got into another like research hole was with ILM, which obviously is George Lucas's company, Industrial Light and Magic. Obviously Star Wars, they did Jurassic Park. They did a lot of the movies that we talk about, you know, off To this air. day, yeah. yeah. And then they also had that graphics company that was sold to Steve Jobs and became Pixar. So ILM is like huge. So it was interesting that when looking at it, you wouldn't really think there's a lot of like special effects yeah. had a ton. Yeah. So other ones, you know, obviously Lieutenant Dan loses legs. They didn't cut off Gary Sinise's legs because you see him in Apollo 13 and everything else. Um, to do this, um, the rest of the movie, they used a blue frap fabric, I guess, where they put it around his legs. And then the ba- they eventually would cut it out with what's called the Roto Paint Team. Yeah. And they would just basically paint out his legs the rest of the movie. Right. I guess the scene where he's getting up onto the 
wheelchair, he does use his legs. And if you really notice it, it's like an awkward, like he's not that strong. Yeah, like like he's pulling himself like he, like, he So like you can kind of see like it. Floats up there. Yeah. 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 So um, I, I read they had to go frame by frame yeah. and like paint out yeah. his legs. Yeah. I also read there's another theory though that there, like he had some kind of contraption underneath the wheelchair and he had to tuck his legs underneath for some scene. That Did he could only sit that? for like 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah so yeah. he could yeah. only yeah. shoot for 10 minutes. Because I would see that would be painful if he had to tuck your, in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah. Well, have you ever sat like on your knees, like on the ground? Yeah. Yeah. You can only sit there for like, five to ten minutes well, that's weird that you say it was frame by frame because they literally called it the roto paint team and that's what their job right. was just to paint out yeah his legs. so like what they're doing is rotoscoping um doesn't necessarily have to be special effects but you do have to kind of like outline or trace whatever it is you're trying to remove or add and you have to do it on a frame by frame basis like now you know there's definitely tools like i mean i use it personally yeah but like there's definitely tools now to help you speed up the process but like back in the day like that was like a super tedious task right having to do all that um, when he was meeting, you know, the presidents and obviously, you know, those presidents had long passed when this movie came out, but they originally were going to use a voice actor's uh, lips and superimpose the voice actor's lips over the actual footage of the president's lips. Really? To get them to say whatever they the Wanted script called for. See, I think that would have been better because that's I, I hate the lips. I do that. too. Yeah. But that that was the reason they they couldn't when they started to do that process. They realized that the when you change the lips of a person, you can change the entire look. So it just wasn't convincing enough to be on the big screen. So that's why they had to go in and actually manually adjust and warp the president's lips to speak the the words that we want them to be okay. speaking. Which obviously, you know. Yeah, it was not great. Um, I'm sure back then it was great. That though. scene where he's getting a medal with Lyndon Johnson. Ugh. Well, okay. but I, the one thing that was actual footage by a guy named Sammy L. Davis. Yeah. I guess he was. It was, he was like where he was the one the receiving. Award, it. Yeah. And they just put Tom Hanks's face in that, and that's why. So that was. I mean, yeah, I thought that was scene was cool. The one with JFK though is just so bad. You know. See, I thought JFK was the best one out of all. Yeah, three that of Lyndon the Johnson was yeah. worse than JFK. Yeah, that was yeah. really. No, that From was the yeah. first one because he's like he, he even walks away and it looks like his like head doesn't match and like <laughs> he's like damn son yeah. yeah it's just like I'd like to see that yeah. Speaking of the war scene, a uh, Vietnam war scene where Gump carries Bubba away from an incoming napalm attack. This was also CGI. Um, what they did was to create the effect. They used stunt actors were initially used, then Hanks and Williamson were filmed with Williamson supported by a cable wire as Hanks ran with him. I guess he was yeah. not you can, actually. You can see holding. it. I, I read that oh, and then I watched it? it yesterday. No, you can't see the cable, but you can, you just, can tell. just tell that he's just like leisurely bopping along with a three hundred with a two hundred pound man in his hands. So like, what they did then is, and then the explosion was then filmed, and the actors were digitally added to appear just in front of the explosions. And obviously, the jet fighters and the napalm canisters were also added by CGI. Yeah. So I didn't know you could actually. I, I have to go back and now see this. You can actually see that he's being Tom Hanks isn't carrying. And it's just him. like it's seamlessly the, carrying it. It's you can't. Not, it's not that like, you can see anything other than the fact that like there's no way that that's Tom physically Hanks, possible. Yeah. Like the physics of it just don't visually. Yeah, it's like me carrying work. you and just like seamlessly bopping along the forest. Yeah. Like it wouldn't work. Another CGI scene. Holly, I'm going to kind of ask you about this. You've been to DC recently, right? Yes, yes. How big is the area right in front of the Lincoln Memorial? Which The they, Washington Lawn? Or the, the Washington? The pool. No, the pool. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's massive. So it's huge. So to fill that area with all those people was right. physically impossible. So they obviously had to do CGI to create the large amount of people shown at that DC peace rally. For this scene, they only had 1,500 extras. And at each successive take, the extras were rearranged and moved into a different quadrant away from the camera. With the help of computers and the extras were then multiplied to create a crowd of several hundred thousand people. Yeah. Which, they do a good job at it. I think it does look filled. I do too, yeah. There's some parts though that are, which I'll get into like the mistakes, but where you can say they eat the same person over and over right. again. That's what I was but, uh, say. But I thought 
thought that was a good scene. I mean, it's the iconic scene of that movie, you know. Right. But ah. there's that word again. So but many, yeah, so they only they only had fifteen hundred people at that place. That's right. The, yeah. If you guys ever go, it's it's a huge. It's gorgeous. But yeah, like you can see the mass amount of people. Um, the last part that I'm bring up, don't forget the feather. I think that other CGI is the feather. Oh right? no, ping pong. Well, oh the ping pong. I forgot yeah. about the ping pong. Yeah. But the feather. Um, everyone thinks the whole feather is CGI, which I read it's not. I guess parts of it is it is, and is it real, isn't. and then they like connect the real footage with another footage using CGI. Yeah. But. So what I read was they actually filmed in front of a blue screen a feather sort of fluttering in the wind tied to a string uh, with a fan below it. And then what they did was they took that footage and they manipulated it so that the feather could twist and turn in any direction that they wanted and they could make it bigger and smaller and whatever. And so that's how they got the feather to follow a specific path that the camera was choreographed to follow. Right. And then obviously in the very beginning of the film, the feather lands on Tom Hanks' shoe, which is, of, and he picks it up, which is of course also impossible for that to like happen on cue. So there was already a feather at the bottom of his foot during that whole take. They went in and erased the feather digitally and then merged the floating CGI feather with the real feather sort of seamlessly so that when he picks it up, it is an actual feather. It's so much for just a, a, at the beginning. Like, a what's simple, the whole point of this dang feather, which we'll yeah, get into. But, we will get into yeah, it. But I, mean, I thought yeah. it was interesting. And um, again, I think you kind of asked yourself, like, would it have been easier just to CGI the entire thing? But even like the documentary that I watched, or it was a, a quick little snippet of like putting the feathers reflection on the car as it like passed over the car. Like all of that was like painstakingly done to make it appear that this feather was obviously real. Cool. Yeah, and then we have the ping pong ball. Other than that, I don't think there's any other CGI. No, but I read that, you know, like going into it, they kind of thought, okay, maybe we'll have 20 CGI scenes that need to happen. Uh, ended up being 120 scenes of CGI that they had to go in and wow. manipulate or create. You don't really think about that when you watch the film you either. You don't. Number one, I think because it's so seamless, but also number two, it's like some of the things that you just are so small that you wouldn't think about. Like obviously we know that the, he's not meeting JFK, so we know that that's CGI, but right. like the ping pong ball, the feather, just things like that that happen in the film where you just kind of, it's just seamless so you don't think about it, which yeah. I think is the, the point of- The movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the point of like that's the, the point CGI. Of CGI. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you notice it, it's not done well. Right. Like, and if you do notice it, the movie has to take itself so non-seriously that you can let it pass. Right. So when you see the archival footage of him talking to the presidents, you know there's no way that happened. So you accept that the CGI might be bad. Right. There's only one well-known figure that um, has a cameo that's played by himself. So everything else is CGI. But when Forrest goes on the Dick Cavett show, Dick Cavett actually plays himself. So when it's John Lennon. And Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump, sitting there on the couch. Dick Cavett actually plays himself because he used to have the Dick Cavett show. Oh. So he's the only well-known figure right. in the movie that has a camera that plays himself. I thought that was kind of cool. Everything wow. else is all CGI. I didn't know that was a real like host. I thought it was yeah. just like a... It was a show that like started back in 68, but it was like a talk show. So Speaking cool. of that, back us up because you're the music guy. John Lennon has a couple lines on there. I heard those were actual lyrics from a couple of his songs. The song Imagine. Imagine. Oh, I don't know. I'm not a music guy. I listened to Pitbull literally right before we did this. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's one of his most iconic songs. Yeah, Pitbull songs are iconic. Oh, stop. Um, I got stuff of the awards. Does anyone else have any behind the scenes stuff before we move on? I got the awards that it won and where it ranks on some lists and all that. If you guys yeah, want me to get into that. Young. 
The film was released um, critically, and it, I think we can all say it was well-received, except for a couple, either, like TJ saying, you loved it or you hated it, but majority loved it. It went on to win six Academy Awards, which were Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editor, and Best Visual Effects, as we were just talking about that. It was nominated for seven Golden Globe Awards and six Saturn Awards. Um, it's on a bunch of lists, ranking it in the top 100 movies of all time. This is depending on what list you look at, but AFI ranked it on their 100 movies. 100 years list as it being number 71 and the line of uh, life is like a box of chocolates that's ranked number 40 of all time so I thought that was kind of cool um, but yeah overall that's what I have on behind the scenes I know there's a lot more like yeah I mean the other thing is that the Library of Congress put this movie into the National Film Registry in I think 2011 as like culturally significant which doesn't happen every film so I thought that was interesting too that's very interesting so, so one thing I found interesting I'm sure you guys all know that Sally Fields and Tom Hanks are only 10 years apart. Right. Yeah. I mean, does it, I don't know if it really adds anything or takes away from the movie. I just think it's interesting that uh, they're so close in age. They do a great job, I think, with Sally Field making her age throughout the movie, personally. I think so, too. Probably and shaking also, her head. I, I feel like that so. happens a lot. In in movies, I feel like there's a lot of times where actors are playing parts that are way not their age and they just make it work. Well, I feel like in this movie, it's just like Robin Wright, like especially we see her become like a teenager. We see her in high school. Then we see her progress into like hippie Jenny, disco Jenny, and then mom Jenny. Mm -hmm. Like we see her progress. We see her age. I'm saying that just the aging that they did with Sally Field was like... All of a sudden, she's like a young hip mom when he's in elementary school. All of a sudden, she's geriatric when he's graduating college. And then she's deathbed when he's like only aged 20 years. I think the casting of Sally Field was terrible. I mean, is it the casting or the the aging of her? A little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. I think they could have done with like another actress. But the fact that they're 10 years apart, I think it just, that's that's one of my, I can't I love Sally Field. In fact, she's the only thing that I remember. Until I watched this movie again, she was the only thing I remembered from the entire thing. That's offensive. I mean, <laughs> that's offensive. But I uh, know I just I think they could have done better. Over Demi Moore, Jodie Foster, Nicole Kidman. You well, think, you're thinking of Jenny. Oh, what am I thinking? Oh, Seinfeld. You're right. So, did you guys read what Forrest Gump's speech at the Lincoln Memorial, the missing part? Did you guys read what I that did was read about? That. Yeah. Okay, because I, I read it. Uh, I read that it was supposed to be. I don't know if you guys got the same thing. Sometimes when people go to Vietnam, they go home to their mama without any legs. Sometimes they don't go home at all. That's all I have to say about that. Why do you think they cut that out? Well, they didn't want to be political or take a side. Like, this whole movie does that. We'll talk about that later, but I think when you talk about baby boomers, their parents that are still alive, potentially, when this movie's out, I think they cut that out because that would force this movie to take a political side. And I think they wanted to kind of avoid that. Do you think they avoid that kind of stuff a lot throughout the movie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think we were talking about it earlier, like, they definitely breeze over some important history of the nation, obviously to stay on narrative with the film. I think as Corinne and I were talking about this earlier too, like also I don't think Forrest really understands. He is, you know, he's oblivious he's a, his, to a lot of this He's stuff. a simpleton. So see, I see I would I would agree with you, Corwin, and agree with you, TJ, but I'm gonna piggyback on that. I, I think the movie itself, there are people making decisions and there are people that take sides and there are people that have political stances, but that's not Forrest Gump. Like Forrest Gump is not someone that's going to like sit there and take a stance on Vietnam. Like the people around him will take a stance on Vietnam, but that's not indicative of Forrest himself. Like he's a character that just stays the course. Right. And yeah. you have to remember it's his narrative too he's telling the story so it's from his perspective the thing is is just like when you make this character a simple character take any sort of political stance then the movie becomes preachy like I'll, I'll get to that later during like trash and treasure and stuff 
But I think you want to avoid that because although Forrest himself is oblivious to the to the consequences and the circumstances, I think when you do that, you're now telling the audience who's uh, attached to this character that they must now also adopt the same stance. And I think they wanted to avoid that. All right, so uh, let's get into our experience with this movie. Mugga, why don't you tell us your experience with Forrest Gump? <laughs> so this is hard because... I literally like tried to think of the first time I watched this and I couldn't like I, I've watched it many times and I have a lot of experiences with this movie, but I could not with the first time I could not figure out was the first time I watched it. I do remember though, this came out when I was in seventh grade, 94. And I remember me being a teenager. We were so, we would always quote that line in a Forrest Gump voice. And I think that's what I remember about it when it came out, we were just immature kids and all that stuff. And, uh, that's my experience with it. It's like, we were walking around saying that box of chocolate line and right. that voice, which is the most immature thing we could have done. But I don't, I cannot, re- I don't know. Can you guys remember the first time you actually saw this movie? Yes. Yeah. Really? You can't. I can't. Yeah. I can't. I, I know a bunch of times when I saw it, but I don't know the first time I ever actually sat down and watched it. Yeah. Cause I mean, so I was eight when this came out. So yeah. I, don't, I, I, I know I didn't go to the theater. I think I saw it the first time on cable TV, probably edited. Did anyone see it in the theater? No. 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 I mean, we were all well, young. That's what I'm saying like, I, I was, watched Jurassic no, Park in the theater half, which... I remember my parents renting it from Blockbuster my mom being very apprehensive of like ugh but my dad being like let's just try it out and then of course we watched it and everybody loved it like well if you look at the movies that like I remember watching Speed for the first time I remember watching Schindler's List the first time True Lies even Angels in the Outfield I remember all those for some reason the one that won the Academy Award I don't remember watching this for the first time it's weird maybe I just didn't watch it until like it actually was like out for a couple I don't know because I, I just I remember saying the quote a bunch of times, but I it was something that was not of interest to me when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. So kind of same thing. I don't remember the first time watching it. I think I watched it again. It must have been on cable TV, an edited version. I might have been nine years old or ten. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> There's no. <laughs> but uh, um, I just remember I remember clearly asking my mom like some of the lines like is life like a box of chocolates like asking her if that's where this line came from was from the movie and stuff like that so I was I know I was really young but I mean I don't remember anticipating the movie like Mugga was saying I remember watching Jurassic Park and some of the mo- uh, other movies that came out that same year but yeah I don't I don't really I mean I've seen it a bunch of times but I don't remember seeing it the first time uh no so I this is this is my all-time favorite movie so it's it's my go-to when I'm on a plane and there's nothing else to watch on a train in an automobile. I'm like, no, I love <laughs> oh, this I movie. You like, <laughs> you see what I did? Sneaky. See what I did? Can we um, describe your outfit right now? Of what I am at? actually wearing a blue plaid shirt yeah. as homage to my boyfriend. Which boy we'll Forrest, get into what that means. We'll right? get into what that means. Mm-hmm. But no, it's just it's one of those movies that, like I said, every single time you watch it. Um, I remember the first time I watched it, I didn't understand a lot of the concepts behind it. I just remember both my parents loving it. And it getting critical acclaim, which is not something that, not to say that my parents were like lowbrow or anything, but they just didn't really agree on movies. They didn't really have similar taste in what was entertaining. Um, If you meet them, TJ, you've met them, you understand. Mm -hmm. They're very opposite. But this is the first movie that I remember them both loving. And then it getting the Academy Award and then just kind of watching it throughout the years. And with each time I watch it, I get something different as I get a little bit older. I don't I don't know how to describe it, but it's kind of like that grease feeling or like that dirty dancing feeling where you watch the movie as a kid and then you kind of go through life a little bit and then you watch it again. And you're like, holy crap, like this movie was about somebody getting an abortion or somebody getting knocked up in high school. And then you're like, mom, like, how could you let me watch this movie? And she's like, well, you didn't know what they were saying. Like, it's it's kind of like that. So I I mean, like the bedroom scene where he first. 
is with uh, yeah. No, I think, <laughs> you I finally think, found out what that means. I think means. a lot of the stuff that really went over my head was more so like the, the, what sticks out in my head the most is the the Jenny like when she was a kid. Her dad was always kitchen kissing right. them oh, and touching yeah. them and like that part like went completely over my head. Probably the first you know four years that I watched this movie and then I watched it again and then I watched it again and then I watched it again and this time was actually really interesting because I did the research first for the podcast. And then I, I had three themes in my mind rewatching it and kind of just watching it under three different narratives. It was really interesting. So even this time when I've seen it probably a hundred times, I still got something new from it. My experience is similar to the, to the other guys. I don't, I don't recall the first time I saw this movie. I don't even know if I saw the whole thing in its entirety. The first time I was exposed to it, I do remember the quotes. I remember, you know, stupid is as stupid does life is like a box of chocolate. I mean, I remember all of it. Um, I remember saying those things, but I don't remember ever really seeing the film. I just know that like before we were preparing for this podcast, before I just recently watched the film, if it was on TV, it's not something I stopped for, certainly. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I just remember, I think because when I saw it, as I said, I was I was probably younger. I, I must have been like early teens when I first saw it. And I just, re- I think it was like way over my head at the time. So I will say that when I just recently watched it again in preparation for this, I had an entirely different experience watching it oh, okay. this last time. But again, I think it's because I'm older. I kind of know some of the things that have happened throughout history I've, I've already been exposed to. So I think that's probably why. And then I also go into it knowing like, oh, this is like a famous movie. Yeah. You know, so I think that also I like think, warps my perception. I think to say what, I think my knowledge of history now too, like I don't know if I ever got the Watergate thing until I finally, no. you know what I mean? So it's stuff so like, quick yeah, too. it's like that. You really have to have, I mean, I think I could watch it now and pick up on something that I never did. Even you know, like that's the John I love. Lennon and like Imagine yeah. Song, like even just like every like part of history that it kind of covered, it covers a lot. So right. it was watching it this last time I, I picked up way more than I ever did when I was like a preteen or whatever it was. I remember when I was a kid, people would just quote it on the playgrounds. You go to Little League games and you play baseball and you got these fools in the stand yelling, run, Forrest, run. And then the whole life is like a box of chocolates thing. Everybody in school was saying that. I, I remember seeing like commercials for Forrest Gump. I remember seeing, you know, you know, like the pay-per-view channel or the right. TV guy channel it just loops the commercial over and over and over. So I remember seeing that and I remember catching Forrest Gump maybe on like network TV back in middle school. I didn't watch Forrest Gump uh, in its entirety until college. I had got home from work and one of my roommates just happened to be like watching it. And I was like, yo, I've never seen this movie. So I just sat on the couch and I watched the whole thing. And you know, I liked it a lot. I always wondered, you know, why is this movie so quotable, et cetera. But yeah, I dug it a lot and then watched it again, you know, a couple times after that. And then for this podcast, I kind of watched it knowing that we had to review it, knowing that I was going to have to take notes and doing like a little tiny bit of research here and there. But, you know, I had a, I had a good time watching it. It's it's a very long movie, but you don't feel the length of it, which I it think is really quickly. cool. Yeah, it moves very quickly. And I appreciate stories that don't waste time. So I, I thought this movie did really well at keeping me engaged for like two and a half hours, which a lot of movies kind of fail to do nowadays. Right. All right, so let's get into trash or treasure. Mugga, why don't you tell us your trash or treasure with this film? I'll start off with my trash. I, I, I think, and I've kind of already hinted at it's the lip reading. That's the one thing I really <laughs> dislike about this movie. It's, it, it, that's I don't know. I, for some reason, I don't like that. Now, doing the research, I realize why it is the way it was. You know, so I can kind of put a pass on that. And now, looking also at the research, I didn't like the running part. I, I don't see the relevance of it. I, I know what they were. I get what they were doing and all that. They were mimicking off of an actual guy. His name was Louis Michael Figueroa. 
I think it was, and he actually said that quote, they put it in, he actually ran from New Jersey to San Francisco for like, I think cancer awareness, something like that. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. I just, I didn't like that part. Um, there is one thing though, and I haven't brought this up with you guys before this, but um, there's two times that I think Tom Hanks loses his character and I see Tom Hanks, I don't see Forrest Gump. So it's when he's disassembling the- Dungeon Sergeant? Yeah, yeah. he goes, Dungeon Sergeant, I, I, I don't see Forrest Gump there. I literally see Tom Hanks, like in any other movie that he does in his voice. And also when he's buying the boat and then the person that is selling the boat says, Wait, what are you, stupid or something? And he does say, stupid is, stupid does. I don't see Forrest Gump there either. I see Tom Hanks. I, again, I'm just reaching because I really love this movie, but I, I don't know. Do you guys agree so with you me said on that? that? I remember before we did this podcast, you said that there was two times. I was watching it yesterday and I was trying to think, like the one time that I know, and it's like right off the top of the dome, is like Dungeon Sergeant. Yeah, his, so there's that. And his like Tom Hanks voice. The, I didn't see it in any other part. I was watch adamantly just try, watching, yeah. trying you know, to think what, that. That one part where he's buying the boat and he says, what are you, stupid? And that's what he says. Stupid is, stupid does, sir. I, I don't know. I, I see Tom Hanks. I don't see Forrest Gump. Again, I'm just really nitpicking at this. My treasure, I love the history. I love the story in general. But something that I think we'll eventually talk a lot more, I love the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack just is like a time traveling, like a... thing right there where you go through all the generations and all those songs. I, I don't know. It's just, it was a great time for a lot of things, but especially music. And I, I love the Jimi Hendrix. I, I don't know, you know, but I'm not that knowledgeable, I guess, when it comes to music, you know, so that's why for me to even like this part, I don't know, it's kind of interesting, but I, I love the soundtrack. That's my treasure, but well, it but, sold yeah. like 12 million copies or something crazy. Wasn't so. it one of the highest soundtracks mm-hmm. of all time? Yeah. All right. So Jason, what's uh, your trash or treasure? Um, well, I have lots of treasures. My trash is, I don't know, it's kind of lean. I mean, one thing I was thinking about, too, is, like, isn't Forrest Gump, like, the ultimate friend-zoned guy ever? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, you think about it, like, like <laughs> Jenny leaves, and Forrest Gump's doing all this great stuff. You know, Jenny keeps coming back, and, like, or he keeps going to Jenny, and keeps getting kind of teased and stuff like that. Jenny keeps blowing him off, seeing him for a day or two, leaving. And then, like, at the end of the movie... She has a kid. She's getting sick, or she may be sick at this point. And all of a sudden, now she wants to settle down with Forrest, who has all this money, has accomplished so much. I feel I, like kind of friends totally to a T. What do you guys think? I, but I think I will. I will disagree. I, I think she think, went and played and did all of her, thing. her BS. I don't want to down. I don't want to downplay. Obviously, Jenny had a really troubling childhood as a character. Obviously, she was not set up for success in her life. I get it. Uh, but she just keeps popping in and out of Forrest's life as if it has no consequence on him. And but, that but is interesting. But whose design is that? Is it Forrest? Because Forrest went to see her at all of these avenues. Came, like She came to her his house and got pregnant. Well, I'm saying, no, I, I, think, I think there's a certain extent. So he went to visit her at college. He went to visit her when she was singing at a strip club. Yeah. He, they randomly ran into each other in Washington, which was like a happenstance opportunity. Sure. She went to his house in Greenbow, yes. Spent time with him. And, and then, then left he, in the middle of the night. Then she wrote him. Then she wrote him a letter and then he visited her in Georgia. So I don't feel like it's her reaching out to him. I feel like it's him, you know, writing her letters when he's at Vietnam. Like he very much carried the torch. Yeah, but she's always the one leaving. But she's okay. always the one leaving like in D.C. Like I said, I don't want to downplay like no, no, so there's, no, no, I, there's a lot of there's a lot of like, yeah. you know, and this is not to stereotype anybody who's been through a sexual assault. And this is this is just stereotypically the behaviors of what happens when you're a young sexual assault victim is that you examine your own sexuality is not your own. And you question your role within a patriarchal society. So when you're molested by somebody, especially your dad, who's supposed to be protecting you, your sexuality is not your own. 
and you will go through great lengths to reclaim it. And I think that's why we see a lot of her being with men who are abusive or, you know, her saying, Forrest, a lot of men want to grab me. And I think it's her trying to find her place in this society. And like when she posed for Playboy, that was her again trying to reclaim her own sexuality. That was her trying to get a little bit back of her innocence. And I think a lot of what this movie does really well, which is one of the lenses that I looked under this movie, is that how they juxtapose Forrest as good and Jenny with bad. And it's not meant to be like Jenny's a bad person. She just makes bad decisions. Right. And it's a result, as you said, of a terrible upbringing. And so one of the lenses that I looked under this movie with was kind of not how women in general are portrayed in cinema, but how women of that time were portrayed in cinema. So you'll see things like Forrest Gump fighting in Vietnam, which to us is like, He's serving his country. He's doing this great thing. And then he would say at night, I w- when it got still, I would think of Jenny. Cut to Jenny being a hippie in San Francisco, doing right. drugs, living right. her free life. Then it would get back to Forrest in Alabama. And then it would be like the nights when I was you know, lonely, I'd think of Jenny. Cut to her at Studio 54, racking lines in a club. Like, right. you know, it'd get to like this moment where Forrest is in you know, doing something wholesome and then it would cut to Jenny doing something bad. And so the whole movie, you're just made to think that Jenny's this bad person just because of the editing. And so I feel like it was a really interesting narrative to watch this movie under kind of what she survived as a a young person and how she's able to navigate life. And I think that moment when she throws rocks at the house and she's crying, I think that's the first time Forrest is just like, well, we're just going to sit on the ground together. And I think that's the first moment of like vulnerability that he actually sees the trauma and how it's affected her. That was really deep. Sorry, guys. No, no, no. And we're, we're, we're still on Jason's trash. Yeah. Sorry. Like, sorry. We totally forgot. Right? Holly just forgot stole the we show. Sorry, 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 sorry. So, you can edit that to where it Jason, what do you think? No, you're good. So he was friend-zoned and, yeah, and, and shit, whatever sorry. Holly said. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, uh, my other small trash is there's, there's some small inconsistency, some mistakes in the movie. Oh, yeah. Did you guys see some of those? Yeah. 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 I'm going to just point out a couple, and then you guys can chime in if you want. Uh, one of them is, we are talking about it earlier, the shrimp on the shrimp boat. So after the storm has passed and Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump are finally uh, becoming successful catching shrimp, uh, when they release the net, the shrimp fall onto the boat, they're headless. So I don't know if you guys know this, but when you catch shrimp in the wild, they have heads. So I thought that was kind of weird that they did that. Um, and then just small things like there's a sequence around 1970 where someone's reading a copy of USA Today. Yeah. USA Today didn't come out till 1982. What else is there? Um, there's Wait, wasn't it wasn't it the clippings that the USA Today of him running or there's another scene where there is another USA there's Today. There's another scene. Oh, there is. Yeah. Okay. And then there's also um, uh, this one's kind of small. The Dr. Pepper logo. Yeah. Um, so during the 1972 New Year's Eve celebration, they showed Dr. Pepper with a logo that didn't come out to the 80s. Uh, same thing with the Apple when he bought stock in it. Uh, they didn't go public till 1981, right? Yeah. And then that Apple, I think, was in 1984. Okay. So it's like that that logo was way before its time. And then one of the last ones is the mellow yellow can. Yeah, I got that one, too. Yeah. So they showed a mellow yellow can in around, I think, uh, 94 or sorry, 74. And that uh, logo was introduced to 79. So just some weird inconsistencies. Um, There's a couple. I, I don't want to mean to cut you off, but I guess the Statue of Liberty was restored, um, restored in, in 1986. And they show it in 19. A lot of this movie takes place in 1970. One that I do, being a sports fan, you know when he's doing ping pong for the last time in that gymnasium? Mm -hmm. If you guys look on the basketball court, there's a three-point line. That actually wasn't um, around till 1980. So they had like the three-point line. But I mean, it's just like, Kerr and I were talking about this before. To make a movie like this in the past and all that, it's hard to get everything. Four months. Like if we were to do a movie in 2000, 
2005 right now. Think about it, you couldn't have one smartphone in the movie, right? Or at least not an Apple phone, right? I mean, iPhone. Like, you had to have a BlackBerry, but it's just like, it's something you would, that's a part of our lives, like we're to get everything right on that timeline, I think would be incredibly hard. I think for what they did, I mean, there are mistakes, but they did a really good job at, I think, trying to keep yeah. it consistent. Speaking of the Dr. Pepper, did Dr. Pepper pay him any money? Cause it's in this movie a lot. There's a like, lot of product the, placement. Is it? Nike, so, Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Don't forget the product placement of uh, Bubba Gump. Bubba Gump, <laughs> yeah, Bubba Gump trip, yeah. So with my... My treasure for the movie. Um, one thing I was reading is that there's a couple depictions of some famous paintings. Yes, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so there's one where they show a young Forrest sitting outside the principal's office. It was I think. a Norman Rockwell, right? Yeah, a Norman Rockwell uh, painting uh, called Girl with the Black Eye. So if you look at the painting, you look at that scene, it's, you know, it almost looks identical. It's huh? almost identical. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, there's another one Holly was kind of talking about a second ago. where the stone throwing scene. Where yeah. She, yeah, where Jenny's throwing the stones against, thanks for stealing my thunder mugs. When no, I'm Jenny's agreeing. <laughs> when Jenny's throwing the rocks against the house um, and she falls to the ground. I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's Andrew Wyeth. I think is the painter's name. Uh, the name of the painting is Christina's World. And again, that looks almost identical to that painting as well. And then again, stealing some of Mugga's stuff. The, the soundtrack, again, the score was done by Alan Silvestri, who did Back to the Future, one of my favorite movies. He did a ton of other movies, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Captain America, The First Avenger. Um, but the soundtrack is really cool. There's It's two discs. There's 34 songs. Um, I believe there's 57 different songs played throughout the movie. But on the original soundtrack, there's, like I think, only 34 I think all of the music is made in America. And then it went from number 34 on the Billboard charts, uh, July 30th, all the way up to number two, August 13th. So mm. almost within a month of the movie coming out, because uh, the soundtrack was released the same day the movie was released, wow. it went all the way to number two. So lots of awesome music in here. And then one last thing I want to touch on for my treasure is there's so much. I'll let TJ and Holly, I think you guys got a lot on this, but just lots of theories and themes throughout the movie. ABC News came out on the 20th anniversary, which was a few years ago, uh, 2014, July 2014, with like seven life lessons that were found in Forrest Gump. Just something interesting, kind of kind of cheesy, but I'll just read through them real quick. The first one is, you'll never know what you're capable of if you don't try to have good friends, be a good friend, pay attention, uh, do what you love no matter what. Uh, the fifth one is stay positive and focused. It's great to give back and then expect the unexpected and be open-minded. So just a lot of things you see throughout Forrest Gump. There's lots of very deep things we could delve into. I'm sorry, what was number one? Number one was you'll never know what you're capable of if you don't try. So I just thought it was kind of cool. Um, just, just do it. Yeah, just do it. Exactly. Oh, more product placement. Wow. <laughs> um, Sponsor right Nike. But I mean, aside from that, like I said, I, have, I mean, I could keep going on with all my treasures. Bubblegum shrimp, I mean, kind of came from this movie. Um, I've actually been to a bubblegum shrimp before. Yeah. Um, I, I believe I read there's only 33 of them. Yeah, there's not a ton. Yeah, they there's are international. Is there one in Alabama? No. There's not one in Alabama, but something that's kind of cool, and I'll end on this, was that the actor Chris Pratt, who did the new Jurassic World movies, he's been in Guardians of the Galaxy, he was actually discovered at the Bubba Gump Strip Company when he was 19 on the one in Maui. The actress's name, I don't think I have it down, but she was in she was in the Bubba Gump, kind of discovered him, put him in an independent movie when he was 19 years old, and his career kind of took off from there. So I thought that was kind of goofy and funny, but I, I can't believe there's not one in Alabama. You would think... Well, yeah, they didn't no, even it film in, it in Alabama. No, but like Bubba is from, was it Louisiana, right? Bubba's from Louisiana, yeah. yeah. So I think, there, is there one in Louisiana, though? You know, I didn't, I didn't read I, that. I don't know. I think, I think that's where he might have founded it. Yeah. Because that's where Bubba's from. I think. I guess that would make, that, that would make sense. Why. Yeah. Yeah. Who started the restaurant? Does anyone know? 
The restaurant? Yeah, like who started, because obviously someone had to start the restaurant after all of this came out. I know it started in 96, but I don't know who started it's the probably restaurant. The I wonder if it's like the studio or the author, or if it was like some entrepreneur who's like, hey, can I use this name? It might be, I don't know. I mean, when you see food, you just start a franchise. And there okay. we go. We're gonna move on. <laughs> all right, so uh, Holly, why don't you tell us your trash Here we go. Uh, Although you already took Jason's time. So I'm actually, time. no, I'm sorry. No, when you say friend zone, like I just kind of, you know, it's not to get on my, my, my horse, but just as watching this movie so many times, the first couple times I watched this, I'm like, Jenny's a bitch. She's dumb. Like she toys with him. Jesus. It's this, it's that. No, I said it. Like I read a lot of articles. It was just like, who's the worst movie character in cinema? And a lot of people easily are like Jenny from Forrest Gump for all the reasons that you say. And I totally respect it. And the first, you know, 10 times I watched it, I felt the same way. But it's just as you get older and as you see how life experience changes you, I get it. And there's like some crazy theory that I didn't even bring up that I want to hear your guys' take on, but we'll bring that up later. But I'll keep my trash or treasure really short. I'll start off with my trash. I think the run scene is complete garbage. Thank you. I don't know how. What? I don't know how it correlates to the overall point of the movie besides reconnecting Jenny and Forrest because she writes him a letter because she sees him on the news. That's the only rhyme or reason why I see this scene happening. And I think the soundtrack. Not- I think the soundtrack's amazing. I think the visual effects of like where they go is stunning. I don't think it needed to be three and a half years. I think it needed to be maybe three months. Because the logistics in my head, I'm like, it doesn't make sense how you can go somewhere for three years and still have a house and still have a life. Like, we won't get into my, like, small details plan. Exactly. Thank you, Jason. But I I don't think it needed to be that long. Um, I wrote down things like, where did he sleep? Where did he eat? Where did he get his clothes? Where did his clothes go? People were running in jeans, and that to me is a pet peeve. Um, but <laughs> well, I mean, like he's he's rich though; he could stay wherever he wants. But I get it. This is before debit cards. Like this is before credit cards. Like, how, what are you doing? Like, how? How are you paying for things? How are you paying if for it's things? not in the novel, they could have found a better way. Because you're saying this is only in there for to connect Jenny and Forrest. I, I again. think that's the only thematic point besides to play like rampant Americana just to get some, rock. Just to get some other parts of the U.S. shown. I mean, I guess I don't know. I mean, is that too far to even stretch? Because they no, I, th- I think that's a good point. I think and some of the symbolism that somebody brought up like the certain symbols that they bring up is the Nike shoes and people think it represents the journey and you never arrive. You simply just keep going. So I get that. I just don't, I don't understand the timing of where it fits in. Like according to the movie, he'd just gotten it in the night before and then he just sets off on a three year run. Well, he helps a guy do a bumper sticker and but this, okay, so this, is, this, is, this is also my reason why is like people make fun of this movie because it's so corny and it caters to the baby boomer generation. But I think this is where most of it gets its schmaltz. It's just like the shit happens bumper sticker, the smiley face, have a nice day t-shirt. Like it's just like where all of those movies that kind of like all those parts of the movie that kind of make you cringe. This is like the pinnacle of them. Yeah. Like so, just the unnecessary. Yeah. I think I know where you're getting at. What? Because we're getting closer and closer to the present. So there's less historical shit happening. Right. So I think you start off, what, he was born in the 40s, 50s? Yeah. 40s, I think, late 40s? Yeah. So you start off, you have um, integration of schools, you have the civil rights era, you have the Vietnam War, you have uh, the technological boom. Yeah, you kind have, of catapulted uh, into. Yeah, you have, uh, was it demanufacturing de- or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. or wh- uh, whatever's going on, the space race, et cetera. By the time you get to the late 70s, you know, 80s, because the movie ends in what, 81, I think? Jenny dies in 1982 okay so it ends mid 80s and because mm-hmm. he still has the kid after so it ends mid 80s like what else has happened that's historical at that point the closer you get to the present the less historical things become and i think they're trying to kind of wrap forest in with whatever may be culturally popular or significant at that time 
because I do remember as a kid, happy face shirts and stupid bumper stickers right. and all yeah. that other stuff. So I think they're trying to like, oh, we got to we gotta squeeze out more stuff that he's either involved in and or responsible for to keep this kind of theme of him kind of running along with America's history throughout the entire film. And I think, did you really have to do that to your point, right. Holly? I think at that point, like you're reaching and it's obvious. Yeah. yeah, like we've already gotten to where you've met presidents. It's just like, I get it. It's like the cutesy part of it that just to me, I don't see any real relevance for it. Like I said, the only arc I see is it connecting Forrest and Jenny again. I think it's beautifully done. I think the soundtrack, like I said, pays homage to baby boomers and classic rock Americana. I get that. But I just, I don't understand the length of it. I don't understand why it's there. So that's, that's one of my trashes. Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, someone did do that. So I guess they're trying to connect it there. But I mean, when you talk about what the book depicts, I yeah. feel like this is far less grandiose and what the book yeah. yeah. I also feel like I feel like running does play a huge part in, in the film in general right it, to me it kind of closes that loop or I guess when he runs to Jenny's house that really closes it but you know he runs when he's a child he's running away from bad things when he leaves for Vietnam Jenny tells him you know if anything bad happens don't be brave you run away when uh, which he disobeys her and goes and grabs everyone he runs from, to grab from, from, yeah, so I mean I guess he listened Napalm, I don't know. but like <laughs> And so again, it's like, you know, something bad happens. He's running away because that's what he's sort of been trained to do. Whatever he's running away from three years later, you know, maybe yeah. that's excessive, but right. I feel like it. Well, I, he does start that run right, at, right after she leaves, right? Yeah. Do you think that's what he's running away from then? I, mean, I think I think he's running away from fatherhood. <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs> what are your treasures? Um, so I'm just going to leave it to my favorite scene of the movie, which is, I mean, I can't pick my favorite, but this is one of my favorites, would be the Lieutenant Dan on the boat scene when it's the hurricane, and then the subsequent day when he swims off into the ocean, and it's just like that backdrop of him, like, back, I'm making the motion of backstroking, if anybody's, you can't see me, but no, I just love... <laughs> it's audio only. Sorry, sorry. Um, no, but it's, it, I think it's just... This whole movie, it's it's funny because I, I feel like it depicts somebody that's down south and Forrest Gump discovers his faith because he's trying to find shrimp and Lieutenant Dan battles with his ideology and his idea of faith. And in that scene, I think it's just him like, you call this a storm? And he's got his little peg legs and he's up on the thing and he's screaming. I don't know. I don't. I just like loved it. It's, a, it's like a literal baptism. Yeah, it's like yeah. a little, it's just like him coming to terms with God and his coming coming to terms with his idea of faith. And so when he jumps off the boat and he's swimming in the water, I don't know. I just thought well, it was like. He also like, thanks for us right then and there, doesn't he? Yeah. 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 He yeah. thanked him for saving his life. Yeah. And I think this was another theme that I looked at the movie that we were talking about a little bit before we started recording was just this idea of free will and destiny. So like, are you going through life just like a feather in the wind kind of like what Forrest like what Mama Gump said is just you know you make decisions and you're given a set of circumstances and you make with it what you will and then you have this idea of Lieutenant Dan of like a destiny and this is what I'm supposed to be and Kerwin you brought up the point that Bubba was going to be you know shrimp boat captain and this was his destiny and this is what he was going to do but then life comes and it kind of kicks you off kilter yeah so it's just you know it's and I think at the end of the movie it's funny because Forrest Gump says I think I think they're both right but it's kind of when you watch the movie under a narrative of is this free will or is this destiny? It's pretty interesting. Definitely. Yeah. All right. So TJ, tell us your trash or treasure with this film. Uh, so my trash is really similar to the guys. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I didn't finish oh, my trash. I'm so course. sorry. I'm of so course. sorry. I didn't finish my trash. I'm just thinking about it now that I said it. Now so the Ren scene's garbage. Um, Sally Field being cast as Mama Gump is garbage. And then the John Lennon scene uh, is... Holly? We don't we don't say garbage here. We sorry, say trash. sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. Like let's let's reel reel this back. That's the so other I podcast. think so I think Sally Field being cast as Mama Gump is trash, 
and I think the John Lennon scene is a dumpster fire. <laughs> from from what aspect? Wow. Do, you, do you mean from the lip the lip movement? I, I think the whole scene in general is just awkward. It has no place in the movie. It has no. It's just it's it's one of those scenes where it's just like a nice. Then somebody shot that nice young man. Like it has no relevance. I think it is the worst. CGI of the movie it, it, yeah. and well, it makes me physically uncomfortable to watch that scene but I thought isn't okay how does Lieutenant Dan find out that he's in New York or whatnot? I thought it was because he was on TV for that interview am I mistaken and he was, he no, he was on it for ping pong but that's but what then he that's was, when he said the Medal of Honor. Yeah, and that's I why guess. he met him outside of the studio so I think that's I guess there's no point having John Lennon I guess in there yeah they just, I also think maybe they added it because he's multiple times he says and then someone shot that young man for no apparent reason at all again going back to the whole like we're just feathers in the wind you know for no reason someone gets shot and it's just one more person that got shot I just think it's the worst demonstration of CGI because the other ones like JFK was bad Lyndon like the Lyndon Johnson one was bad but then the John Lennon one it's just like I physically make myself smaller to experience less of it like you know (laughs) it's funny you say that too because like the host was actually playing himself I was gonna say that too it is just it is cringeworthy and I think I think they could have done you know another way to link Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump back together like if that's the driver of that interaction but to me it was just awful um sally field like i said i will defend that decision i think they should have gone with an older actress and like less aggressively aged her i think sally field is beautiful i think she's an amazingly talented actress but i think but i think no, no no i think the lengths that they went to age her and i think they just wanted sally field to play this part and they would do anything possible to make her play this part because she's a fantastic phenomenal actress the maybe it's the makeup maybe it's the prosthetics i don't know i just it, i just hated it I love her. I just, I don't like her in this role. You're on thin ice. I know, I know. I'm skating though. That's okay. <laughs> 1994 is when the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding thing went down. So perfect. Ooh, perfect timing. Uh, yeah. We're playing. We're playing. All right, TJ. Okay, my no, I'm so sorry. I will not interrupt That's okay. you. <laughs> That's okay. Um, okay, so my trash is really similar to the guys. Uh, there were some inconsistencies. Uh, we talked about the Statue of Liberty and sort of showing a restored statue when it wasn't restored until much later than that point in time in the movie. Same thing with the Dr. Pepper logo, the USA Today. The biggest gripe that I had, and I'm surprised no one has mentioned this yet, but the running sequence doesn't really match a timeline. So when he starts to run, we know because he passes a barbershop or something where the television or radio is playing and it's talking about when President Carter collapsed due to um, heat exhaustion. And we know that that happened on a specific date, October 1st, uh, 1979. He tells us that he's been running for three years and two months, but then he's back at home. Jenny dies in 82. So that doesn't even make sense also. Yeah, yeah. you're right. I didn't yeah. even know that. So yeah. then he's back at home. He gets a letter from Jenny. You see on the TV, there was um, Reagan's assassination attempt, which took place in 81. So there's no way that he could have been running for that long of time. I never even um, put that together. That's pretty cool. There's like an eight-minute really long me. YouTube video about how <laughs> it's factually inaccurate. They go over the distance that he ran, the timetables with which he went over, and it just doesn't make sense. So this is more reason why yeah. this scene yeah. is trash. So it just, you know, again, when I think about movies and of course, you, I, I know you can't get everything right. There's going to be mistakes here and there. But, you know, you go through all of this trouble to insert Forrest into these historically relevant events, meeting presidents, 
John Lennon, whatever the case may be. Um, but then you you can mess up something like the logo that wasn't even invented at, at that point, or you can mess up a timeline based on events that that people can go back and and, and verify when these events happen. I just think it was. I don't want to say lazy, but it's kind of lazy that no one would just like fact check that, that kind of stuff, especially, you know, Dr. Pepper played a huge part in the film and so did Nike, but like for them to get a logo wrong, it just seems lazy, lazy. (laughs) it just seems lazy to me. Um, especially given like the painstakingly um, amount of time, the painstaking amount of time that they took to like insert him into all of these historical events to get lazy for a logo. just seems like a miss Mm -hmm. for me. My treasure is actually, I know we've talked a lot about how the CGI was not great, um, specifically the lip the lip movements of people who are no longer with us, like the president, John Lennon. And I agree with that. I don't think that it was done really well. But I appreciate any time um, real world history is merged with sort of a fictional character or, or a fictional series of events. We see this in a few other movies. And I really like, like if they would have really used, like that. If they would have used like random president names and not that, it would have like totally... I think pushed me back like wait I don't like that you know for sure and yeah. even if they had used doubles oh, yeah. um, instead of using actual footage I th- I think like we talked about uh, Mugga spoke on it earlier filming Tom Hanks in front of a blue screen having to shake a imaginary person's hand at the exact same pace that this person who's actually meeting the president is shaking his hand that takes a lot of time and effort and yeah. um, and I appreciate them going through that effort to to draw us into a story and connect it to things that have actually happened Maybe that's, the, that's why they got lazy in the logos. They maybe, put so much yeah, time on this. No, and I agree with that. I think I think it's better suited when he actually doesn't interact with the people. Because when you compare like the desegregation at the University of Alabama right. versus, say, for instance, the John Lennon scene, I think it's 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 so much better when he's not actually interacting. But it, like to have that footage, it right. does something for I just, you. I just wish that they used whatever the president was saying at the time that they kind of figured out words that sort of matched his lip movements to fit into the script versus trying to manipulate their lips to say what fit the script. So I yeah. wish they had con- We've all kind of seen gone the other way. Bad but. NFL lip reading, we could have done better. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly right. So that was my trash and treasure. Yeah. Kerwin seems mad to do this right now. <laughs> no, I mean, my trash or treasure, I'm going to just go through like the quick treasure real quick because like my main gripes with this movie also have to do with what I think it's uh, successful at. So um, I'm just going to say, like, number one, Tom Hanks' performance is amazing. 100%. So was uh, Robin Wright's performance. The scenes that really got me, when uh, Jenny's throwing uh, the rocks at her old house, that was a really powerful scene. Yeah. Um, also, when uh, Forrest meets his son and he asks her, like, is he like me? Um, I thought that was, like, a really powerful scene. Um, you really got to see Forrest for the first time, maybe the second time, the first time kind of being like when you said when uh, he takes Jenny to her old house, kind of for one moment in this entire movie or two moments in this entire movie, Forrest is not oblivious to the world around him. Right. I think that I think there's three moments and I'll agree with you on those oh, two. What's, what's the third? I think the third one is I, I think it's it's more so I realize he's actually like self-actualizing in a world. He's mm-hmm. not just going through it. So one of them would be like you said, when he's in the house with her, he kind of like has this look on his face where you can see he's kind of like, oh, 
shit, like, what do I do? I'm just going to sit. Like, I'm just going to, I have nothing to add to this. Like, I'm not going to talk. Um, I think the second one was, he said, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Yeah. Like it's that self-actualizing. Like mm-hmm. I realize that I'm not intelligent, but like, I know what this concept is. And then the third one, when he was like, is he like, and he points to himself, is he like me? But I think that there, I think I would agree with you hundred percent. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I think, um, those are, those are really powerful moments, really great moments of acting, uh, on Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. <laughs> you had to throw that in there, didn't you? <laughs> Uh, Tom Hanks's part. There's really uh, great moments of acting on Tom Hanks's part. I love the way they do montage in this film. Um, so when they go through uh, Lieutenant Dan's uh, ancestors dying in oh, you know cool. different wars, um, I thought that was cool. I love how when Forrest is narrating Bubba's family history as it relates to you know being knowledgeable about shrimp um it shows the different generations of like his mother grandmother etc um serving food and in the very last shot uh once he gives uh Bubba's mom his portion like she gets served by like a white lady so I thought that was a good way to end the montage um the other montage I think I think that might have been the only two that I can remember at the moment I like the running scenes visually I have to agree with you guys. Like, it does take up a lot of time in this film. And I think to Holly's earlier point, I feel like they were just trying to find something that was recently culturally significant to kind of mimic or um, attach Forrest to. And I think that's the only reason they did it. I think you could have easily connect Forrest and Jenny some other way. I mean, if they had a kid together, I think she she may have reached out just for the sake of the kid. But if if you want to tie the running in the real life running into this movie, that's that's an okay way to do it, I guess. But I guess I think they spend way too much time on it. But the cinematography when he's running is incredible. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, like so many beautiful shots during that entire sequence. So I thought that was cool. My trash is it has to do with like kind of you know this glamorization or sugarcoating of american history um we're talking about the 40s through the 80s and even still on then you know this is one of the most rapidly and radically changing climates um in world history not just u.s history and i feel like this movie glosses over it almost to the point of being harmful this movie does place force there for comedic effect to add a little bit of the fantastic element to his life story which is great and i think that part of the movie works exceptionally well but what, at what expense i know what you're yeah at what expense at what expense though because when you say it caters to baby boomers or it caters to you know the greatest generation if you will i think there's a lot of things that this movie doesn't want to be on either or side of um for example i i don't know the book but i know that force is a much more abrasive character in that book and you know not having read it i'm not going to make any judgment calls on that but i do feel like the screenwriters definitely softened up this story for film which is fine the goal of a movie is to to make money let's be real like you want to include as many people as possible but i feel like they were very cautious about not wanting to alienate anybody who would be on the opposite side of history regarding any particular historical moments so you have the, you know, the desegregation of Alabama schools uh, where Kennedy laid out an executive order that said, um, you know, schools had to be desegregated. You know, that's fine. If you don't want to touch on that, that's fine. Let it happen. 
but you have Forrest Gump even walk in there and uh, kind of hand the book off to uh, one of the students. I had names in here, but I can't find those. Um, you have that moment. You also have the Vietnam War. Him participating in it is one thing, but you have the entire speech at the Capitol where you know his mic gets cut. We talked about this earlier. I think for good reason. If you don't want to piss off anybody. Because you know this, these are really you know divisive times in the U.S. If you don't want to piss off a particular audience, you just cut out his audio, and I think that's smart. But one thing that I think this movie, for good and bad reasons, leaves out is like the entire civil rights era is almost entirely left out. It's um, literally cut out. Of yeah, the it's, it's just it's, that one scene in the school, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... Well, there's more, but it's it's like so you have the Alabama desegregation. At the college, you have uh, Forrest when he's named. They make it very clear from the beginning. Oh, yeah, they make it very that. clear, yeah. like he was named after a Klansman, not because that's something to be proud of, but because sometimes people make stupid decisions. And I think this movie, you know, I think I feel like that was the only stance that was ever taken in this movie, which I appreciate. But I feel like everything else is just sugar coated. Um, Forrest never comes in contact with or meets a black celebrity. Like you're telling me in like the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, during a time where society in America was being more culturally melted together. Like you're telling me like he doesn't meet one during this entire time. Like me, like I'm just going to say it, me personally, I just have to look at it sideways because, you know, I see Elvis, who was inspired by a lot of black artists. I see him, you know, taking the place of the security guard who called in the break-in at Watergate. You know, he was black. I see the Black Panther party scene, which I, I kind of felt that was kind of iffy because he goes to the, the Black Panther party meeting and you, you pretty much have what is a stereotypical portrayal of the party as being um, uber militant, black Angry. leather jacket. Yeah, like screaming, yelling, toting guns around. And there's a scene where uh, Forrest walks away when he sees the dude hit Jenny and the dude is literally talking to nobody. He's just shouting, shouting, shouting. And to me, that kind of represents a feeling that what he's got to say or whatever he might feel or whatever he might be representing is insignificant. And I kind of felt that way watching that scene. Like the guy is still yelling to the air and Forrest has walked away. And in the background, even though the audio cuts out, you can still see him yelling. I think it's an almost surgical removal of black involvement in American history. And I'm going to say this too. I think it's a surgical removal of feminism too and gender rights. Look, he doesn't have to meet a black celebrity. He doesn't have to meet a female celebrity. But I think this movie and its attempts to be so wholesome, like I said, you don't want to alienate anybody who may be on the, I'm going to just say it, the wrong side of history. But I think this movie plays it very, very, very safe. But you kind of scratch your head and say, well, why isn't this in there? Why is this not in there? Either TJ or yeah. somebody mentioned a scene where he kind of calls over one of the police dogs and it allows uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s caravan to pass through. Yeah, there was a there was a cut a scene, scene right? where yeah, uh, scene, yeah. he ran he did run into Martin Luther King and uh, his supporters walking in. The police released the police German shepherds, and then Forrest, of course, innocently starts playing fetch with one of them, and they all start kind of playing fetch with Forrest, uh, basically rendering them ineffective against Martin Luther King and the caravan that it's trying to pass. So. Uh, that scene ended up on the cutting room floor for you know whatever why? reason. Yeah, I don't. I, would, I, would I, just, I feel like it'd be a really divisive scene. Yeah, I thought you, a lot about that. Yeah, I, I'm gonna just say like if you put that scene in the movie, I would say take that shit out. 
I exactly. Think, Here's a white man yeah, saving, yeah, you know, diminishing. a protest. You're, you're completely negating the point of the protest. Yeah, it's a peaceful by, protest. By playing fetch. By like having a white man come in and de-escalate and save the situation. It just kind of like this movement never would have happened had it not been for white some yeah. dude. Yeah, so I think I think that's smart because I find both problems with it and I find... That they did the it brilliantly. They, yeah, yeah, the reasoning they did it to be smart as well. Um, and I also look at the fact that they did make um, Forrest more likable, less judgmental, less of an asshole uh, compared to the book based on what little I've read about it. But um, I think I think because he's such an oblivious character 95% of the time, the audience is forced to see things from his perspective. So when he glosses over things like the JFK assassination, it's not because the filmmakers don't care or that the audience doesn't care. It's not even that Forrest doesn't care. It's because he just doesn't know. That, and that's when, the only reason this film works and that's to exactly, do that. And, and so that's, that's kind of to your point of how they did it effectively. Yeah. Because if this was any other character other than Forrest, it wouldn't work because you can't be that oblivious to the things that are happening around you. But Forrest is. Yeah. And so when you're hearing it from his perspective and he is glossing over these important moments in history, you're okay with it because Forrest is so naive about everything else anyways. Yeah, exactly, TJ. That's exactly it. Like, because... Because he's so naive about it, he doesn't even have the opportunity. He isn't given the opportunity by both the narrative and by his own character to sit and contemplate the uh, the circumstances and the consequences Absolutely. of whatever actions he himself or society is taking. Had he been a more self-aware or societally aware character, culturally aware, etc., like the movie would have been about one thing because in order for somebody to sit and contemplate those things, the movie would have to come to a screeching halt every single time he came into contact with any sort of historical event or figure. Right. I don't like that they sugarcoat American history, but I do appreciate that they realize that there's no way to tell this story without doing it, without being, without dividing, you know, the population. Divisive. Yeah. Because once Forrest picks a side and the audience is wholly invested in him, You're the, the movie half. becomes yeah. preachy. And I know I'm, I'm going on with this, but Holly and I, we spoke about this earlier. You know, the movie and it, you know, while the movie tries not to be preachy through the narrative itself, you look at the lives of um, Forrest and Jenny as being preachy. Mm-hmm. I think right. you look at Forrest as somebody who's, excuse my language, who's dumb and just does what he's told and does all the right things. You know, the American way goes to goes to high school, goes to college, plays football. He's an all-American, shakes hands with the president, goes to war, survives the war, comes back, becomes a celebrity goes to the Vietnam rally, doesn't say anything. Whatever he says must have been good or whatever, we'll never know for the same reasons I I listed before. And then you have Jenny who, you know, unfortunately as a child was abused and kinda kinda went down for I don't have any better words for this, but the wrong path, if you will. And, you know, she's being actively involved um, in society, meeting different people, traveling the US, and her journey directly mirrors that of Forrest's, except her life and her lifestyle continues to degrade each time we see her. Um, she's getting hit, beat, abused, going from house to house, two moments where suicide. she, yeah, contemplating suicide. And I feel like this movie, whether intentionally or unintentionally, has the message that if you just do what you're told, believe in God, and do things the American way, you'll be fine and successful and safe. But if you think outside the box, you know, you'll end up like Jenny. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to portray considering that she was a victim of abuse. And I think while this movie does bring that up, 
you know, they kind of close the loop, if you will, when mm-hmm. she goes back to her house and Forrest does bulldoze the damn right. thing. Thank God. They kind of they kind of wrap that up, if you will, maybe. But I think it's very dangerous to kind of put that message forth and not take a deeper dive into the consequences or lifestyles of peoples that may have suffered at the hands of others or were in a position where they couldn't have done anything about it, i.e. a child, as Jenny was. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, but for the most part, I think the makers of this film, the writers, really took what could have been a really, really controversial novel based on what I'm looking at and... And they really managed to rewrite it in a way that's entertaining, fun. And I think they found a way to have Forrest navigate this while keeping the story about Forrest. There's a few right. times where it gets off the rails and I feel like they're not, the movie's not about Forrest anymore, but I feel like... What, what point are you talking I mean, just, just, just The closer you get to the present, the more it feels like they're shoehorning shit in. Like oh, okay. the run, yeah. like kind of all the stuff Holly said. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Kerwin. Um, unfortunately, due to some uh, technical difficulties, uh, part of the podcast got lost. So we're just going to go ahead and skip ahead to another part of the podcast. Okay, so so with going with going through your trash or treasure and just kind of how they've done it um, and how Forrest Gump seemingly navigates staying neutral, uh, there was one theory that I watched, like one narrative that I watched this last time that I watched it. Um, how many times can I say watch in one sentence? Uh, but Forrest Gump. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Shit. Hey Holly, watch yourself. Oh God. God make me a bird so I can fly. Yeah, I fly, fly, fly. <laughs> um, no, so Lieutenant Dan and Jenny. Um, so there is the theory that I watched it when I was watching this last time that Forrest remains the only stagnant character throughout the movie, and that the character development that we see or the growth that we see in this movie comes from either Lieutenant Dan or Jenny, and. My theory with that is kind of that I watched it under that narrative and it made a lot of sense because you have kind of two opposite people. So you have Lieutenant Dan, hardcore Americana, veteran, comes from a family of war heroes, has a certain amount of destiny, but also struggles with his mental health, kind of relays a lot of the lot of the qualities of, of PTSD following Vietnam. And then you have somebody like Jenny who who faces an early childhood trauma, who kind of navigates life under that lens, providing character development. What do you guys what do you guys think about Forrest? I think he's one of those characters that just stays true to some of those, like, being a friend, always being there for someone. When you make a promise, you always keep it. So I think he, you're right, he he does stay kind of stagnant throughout the film. Mm-hmm. He, he's, his character doesn't develop a lot, except for right. his age, obviously, and what he does throughout his life. But, yeah, I mean, it's a whirlwind with Jenny and Lieutenant Dan, not only themselves, but their interactions with Forrest. Right. I feel like they go from just being... I mean, Lieutenant Dan is just such an asshole at first to, to Forrest. And then by the end of the movie, you know, they're, they're great pals. Same thing with Jenny. I mean, Forrest interrupts her life a lot. Going in, you know, when someone's trying to, you know, grope her. Or when people are getting kind of aggressive, uh, gra- yeah, aggressive when she's singing naked on the stage. Like, he just interrupts. She gets really upset with him. She takes off. But I think by the end of the movie, you see them develop a lot more than you see Forrest. Yeah. And I actually never put the two and two together uh, and never really saw the parallels of Jenny and Lieutenant Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, especially like at the end of the movie where they actually merge and they meet and uh, we have like sort of a nice happy ending. And it's, but I never that's really, like when they both realize too, it's like they both, I guess what you guys are talking about, 
became the people that that's when they actually met. That's the important. Well, yeah, this at is, the wedding. Yeah, this is something that, was... that we talked about previously. It was just like we we are so quick to paint Jenny as the villain. We're so quick to villainize her. Whereas Lieutenant Dan kind of gets gets off scot free because we see him as a veteran with PTSD. Like we don't allow the same. I guess leeway to Jenny, even though she's faced the same, if not more, trauma than Lieutenant Dan. You know right. what I mean? And, that, and, and that's like, kind of what I. So Lieutenant Dan's allowed to be a dick because he served in. Yeah, we give Vietnam, him a free pass. So he gets a free he pass. Lost his legs, but. But we, we don't give Jenny a free pass for yeah. a childhood full of trauma. Like right. the audience is finally forced to recognize that when they finally go back to Alabama and she looks at her her dad's old house. Right. And she, you know, she throws the rocks and she kind of she kind of has this breakdown where Forrest has to kind of be there for her and just kind of be in the moment with her. I think that's the only time that this movie really forces the audience to kind of recognize the kind of trauma that she's been through. Whereas right. Lieutenant Dan, you see it. He's on the battlefield. He has yeah. no legs. But with Jenny, you, you know, just think bad decision, bad yeah, decision. You just think she's bad because she's doing this. She's right. bad. She's bad. When but really, I, that's not the case. But I think throughout the whole movie, though. I always had a soft spot for Jenny because of what she did for Forrest when they were kids. When she gave up that seat, right. told him not. So it's like I get she's making bad decisions or doing whatever she's not she is. A bad person. But I just loved her. <laughs> I mean, at the end, you're like, thank you. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I always had a soft spot for her. See, I just, I, I just had a realization as you were talking about her, her kind of come to Jesus moment of her like throwing the rocks and stuff. Do you, I think, do you think that was Lieutenant Dan when he was like swimming in the water? Was that his come to Jesus moment? Oh, yeah, like, I mean, I think we also was, have to acknowledge like, that after that was, Jenny, that was like, that was the catapult to them changing their behavior because Lieutenant Dan kind of disappears. Do you think him no, shrimp boating? No, no, no. She left again she, she after left, she, she threw the rocks. They up, after they hooked up, she left again. And I think her come to Jesus moment was after she had the kid at some point in time because she has an apartment now. She has a babysitter a taking care of her kid, a job. Uh, she's making sure that the kid is keeping up with his grades. At some point in time after she left Forrest, after they hooked up, maybe during or after she had the kid, I think she had her come to Jesus moment, if you will, off screen. Yeah, we yeah. just didn't get to see yeah. it. Right? I didn't yeah. get to see it. We didn't get to see it. And I think... And I think I think when, when Forrest, I, yeah. I don't, well, I think when Forrest finally goes to see her, you kind of see, okay, she's realized it. I mean, in my, the first time that, I think it's it, before that. You think so? Because yeah. like, look at, look at the No, 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 no. that's doing. when we understand, oh, oh yeah. she's already had that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I know we don't see the moment like you do with Lieutenant Dan, but. Do you think we should have seen that moment? Yeah. I don't know. I think okay, so this is this is how I imagine like the perfect Forrest Gump movie, and like there's a lot of plot holes, and I will acknowledge that. But the only the one part that take out really, the running scene that's perfect. That really, no, and the John Lennon scene. But the one scene that really irks me is that they have kind of this weird this weird interaction of like I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is, and that's one of three moments where I feel like Forrest Gump actually acknowledged practices some sense of self awareness. Yeah, and I feel like they have this this night and you kind of assume that they you know make a baby but then she leaves the next morning and that right. to me just doesn't make any sense and if I could rewrite this and make this like a perfect Forrest Gump like I would give it a month maybe two months she's throwing up then she realizes like I gotta get my shit together and bounce the other thing like I just thought about as you were talking you know we talk a lot about Forrest running and the part you know Jenny tells him you need to run if anything happens run away don't be brave run away Jenny has been running her whole life well right well we brought up that point of just like this is a far-fetched idea 
But one of the theories that I read online is that Jenny Jenny stays away from Forrest Gump because she was a victim of childhood trauma and she feels like Forrest Gump is stuck in an age where he is the developmental age of a child. And she doesn't want to perpetuate the cycle of abuse, which is why she distances herself from him. Right. She doesn't think she's good enough for she doesn't want to hurt him. She doesn't want to yeah. harm him she, the way that she was harmed. She says multiple times, like, you don't you don't want me. You don't right. want to marry me. Right. You don't know what I am. Like Right. And, and I think she's keeping her distance is. to keep him safe. Really. Right. She doesn't want to hurt him. She doesn't want to she doesn't want to ha- have him feel the way that she felt as a kid. Yeah, and to also to that point, I think um, you know, Holly, you mentioned earlier she's trying to, you know, reclaim herself, her identity, her sexuality. You know, you really can't do that if you, you can't be there for somebody in a relationship if you're doing that. You right. know, you kinda gotta be responsible and you know, I gotta I gotta get myself in order before I kinda make myself a part of somebody else's life. Right. Which a lot of y'all need to do out there. Yes. <laughs> Can I ask a question though? Shade. Can I ask a question? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. At the beginning of the movie, there's a feather. Does the feather mean anything? Yes. Or is it just a feather? <laughs> Thank you for bringing this up. I have so many so many thoughts on this thing. So uh, originally, like when I watched the movie, it totally flew over my head, like it's just a feather or whatever. But flew. I see what <laughs> you did there. Yeah. I see what you did there. Uh, but the feather lands at his at his foot, which is interesting because um, there's multiple times in the movie where we talk about this theory of are we making things happen or do things happen to us? Um, is it our destiny, destiny yeah. or, or our fate or are we making decisions that lead us to certain places? And we talk a lot about destiny. We talked a, uh, a lot, Lieutenant Dan talked about it when he lost his legs. Um, Bubba talked about it. You know, it's it's my, I'm going to own a shrimp boat. That's my thing. That's what's going to happen. When Sally Field's character was dying, uh, she talks to Forrest and she says, you know, I didn't know it, but I was destined to be your mother. And then at the very end, Forrest also talks about this whole theory when he's talking to Jenny at the grave and saying, I think it's a little bit of both. I think things happen to us and we make choices and how and how our life plays out. And I think that the entire the entire film is about Forrest finding himself in situations where he really doesn't belong. There's no real reason for him to be in any of these situations. He just happens to be at the right place at the right time. A football coach happens to see him running away from bullies across a football field. He happens to be drafted in with Bubba and Lieutenant Dan into the Vietnam War uh, when they're under attack. He happens to be a great runner so he can save all these people. He happens to learn ping pong. There's nothing that he really chooses to do. It's all just the world around him happening and he reacts to to that world. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that the feather also kind of symbolizes that, that, you know, are we all just kind of feathers floating in the wind and we land where we land and uh, it is what it is, or are we making choices that lead us to our destiny at the end of the day? Feather's a bird, DJ. <laughs> <laughs> look, man, I think, <laughs> DJ, I mean, look, I think you're just winging it at this point. No. <laughs> no, I think. That flew over my head a little yeah, bit. I know. <laughs> You guys are dumb. Uh, no, I always thought the feather represented Jenny. Like I thought it was in the beginning of the in the beginning of the movie. You see the feather come down and it lands, and then we don't know it at that point. But he's going to meet Jenny, so he picks up the feather, puts it in the book, and then at the end of the movie, when Jenny passes away, and then his son takes Curious George to school to show for show and tell, he opens the book, the feather falls out, and kind of the ending of the movie is it's free. 
And I always thought it represented Jenny because the beginning of the movie, she says, Dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, right. far from here. And don't forget when he lays her to rest, like as soon as he walks away, like a million birds. Right. Even tree. when she's it's saying, just, Dear God, make me a bird. I mean, birds fly birds. at that point yes. too. Yeah. So the two so scenes kind of make I think there's themselves. so much symbolism. I think I wouldn't have personally handled the feather the way that he did because birds are dirty, but right. more, more, more on you. But. Sorry, birds, we apologize. <laughs> Disgusting. No offense. Uh, no, but I mean, I think ultimately the feather could mean anything, and it could mean nothing. Oh. You know, I, I don't know, but that's kind of what I took from it as I was sort of researching, and the more I thought about it, and, and as I was watching the movie, I'm like, yeah, Forrest is, he's just reacting to the things that are happening. Right. He just happens to be in the right place at the right time that makes him so successful throughout the entire film right. for doing nothing, really. Yeah, I mean, the guy that is in charge of special effects, Ken Rawson, he said that the feather can mean so many things to so many different people. I don't know if we're overanalyzing it. Did, Jason, didn't you say that a bunch of the cast have different opinions, too, yeah, about the a, feather? Yeah, um, there's a little snippet of like the cast talking about what they thought the feather represented. Yeah, didn't you have one, Holly? Yeah, the- so Tom Hanks interpreted the feather as, our destiny is only defined by how we deal with the chance elements to our life, and it's kind of that embodiment of the feather as it comes in. Here's this thing that can land anywhere that lands at your feet. It's, it has theological implications that are really huge. So I think we all can interpret this. I mean, as an English literature major, I mean, I kind of just went the base route, but TJ went the Tom Hanks route. trying to get that bachelor's degree fourth yeah. year route. I loved it. And as and as an art major, <laughs> I drew feathers. Yes. Can I ask another question? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. What did Jenny die from? Hepsi. Oh. Okay. We know for a fact it was Hep C because of the sequel, which right. we didn't really even talk about that a lot. You right. Know? right. But do you think that that was put in because that would make it make sense? Or I think Because I, I originally always thought it was HIV. Everybody thinks it's HIV, and that's like the common thing to think because she says it's a virus, it's an unknown course. I did a lot of research on this because I knew you were going to come at me with this because we talked about this earlier. <laughs> um, in 1982, when she died from Hep C, uh, the first reported... Debatable instance of somebody passing away from AIDS was nine months previous to that. So I think following the narrative in 1994 and when you're trying to correlate a point to the baby boomer generation, everyone remembers where they were when the AIDS epidemic was kind of announced. Yeah, but maybe they got that wrong. They got the Dr. Pepper logo wrong. Maybe they got this wrong too. You don't think so? It's Hep C. That's why they got it wrong. doctors, they get wrong. <laughs> so, the thing is too, here's my thing. So no, 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 but, no, but the mathematicals, sorry to go back on this. So I researched it. The mathematicals on that, if she, like given the life expectancy when being diagnosed with AIDS, with knowing what they knew about it in the early 80s, she would have had to have contracted it after Forrest was born, little Forrest Jr. Forrest Jr. was born. Hmm. It doesn't make Which sense because then is Tom Hanks infected? Do you think with she age? relapsed or she's out? Do people not do that? Not when they have a kid. Not <laughs> she has a short haircut. She's serious I think, now. Okay. Here's the thing. Like, I think I I think about when you're writing the screenplay. What are your intentions? The sequel, the the book that was written. I think it's called Gump and Company. Yeah. The sequel is written after the movie's release. So at that point, you can make any decision that you want. Right. But. The fact is that they had an idea in their head of what she died from when they wrote the screenplay. Did they think that was Hep C or did they think it was So uh, Robert HIV Zemeckis, the director, he said it could have been, but it does it didn't matter. I mean, everyone thought that because it was so topical in the era, but we never said it. We never said it in the movie. We didn't want it to be, you know, the issue. Yeah. Well, don't you think that's like a little, you know, hypocritical of them though? Why? To kind of want to glue themselves to American history the entire film. 
and then end at a point in history in which HIV and AIDS was like like a huge fear among the American public. I think this is me personally. I think if that she had died of HIV and AIDS, it would have it would have kept kind of along with the theme of forced life being intertwined with what is happening in American history as opposed to shoehorning in t-shirts and bumper stickers I think what a what a powerful way to kind of right end this right and I think and I think playing along to your point of your trash or treasure it kind of went against the stereotype of what HIV was at that time Mm -hmm. like it wasn't just prominent in the homosexual community it was you know a woman dying of HIV AIDS and so I mean it kind of undid its stereotype but I don't we like I said I, I researched a lot on it, but watching it for however many years, right. it was probably a couple you years ago that I read something that it was like Hep C, and it's, then I was like, no, oh, it's, okay. it's written in the other one that it's, it was Hep C. It's it's meant you're meant to believe it's AIDS. Yeah. I think that just kind of correlates to the point. If you ask anybody on the street, ninety nine family of guy people, did an episode oh or boy. part on it. Well, I'm not gonna bring it. I'm just saying ninety nine percent of people yeah. would say it's AIDS, and you haven't sent me the the Team of Miracle World. <laughs> but but yeah. here's here's the thing though. Jenny doesn't die in the novel, does she? She doesn't, no. Yeah, so it's just like, this guy could have taken the success of the movie and tailored his narrative. Who knows if he was even going to write a sequel until the movie came out. Yeah. He He's going to get paid for the first one, so yeah, he wrote a second he one. He could have tailored his narrative to fit kind of with the, with the goals or the aspirations of what the movie script was. Because even the movie script is like way different than the novel. Right. right. And that's the thing too is like I obviously we know that um book sales for the first Forrest Gump novel skyrocketed once his movie was released obviously as things tend to do. I I can't help but think that he was influenced by the fact that so many people knew Forrest Gump as the Gump in the movie. And so when he's writing a sequel, he's not doing it through a clean lens. He's doing it through a jaded lens because the movie, which is so different from the original novel, he has to tailor to that demographic that only has that exposure to Forrest Gump. So it almost seems like it's disingenuous. Like it's just like I'm gonna ride this ride this cash cow all the way. Yeah. I'm not mad. I mean No, get your check, girl. But with AIDS, (laughs) when you have AIDS, don't you pass that to your offspring? Either breast milk, like the, the the chances of when you deliver a baby, the only way you can pretty much contract HIV is through like fluids um, and breast milk. But that's what um, Holly said earlier was she would have had to contract the disease after she gave birth. Well, just timing wise, and I mean, I'm just again, this is I'm not a doctor, like, I'm not you know anybody with. So any, she got knocked up by Forrest. And then yeah. had the kid, and then would have had well, to have gotten AIDS. Well, because that's everybody's question: is yeah. if she had HIV AIDS, like she would have infected Forrest with it after they got married, and she would have infected her child with it. Where it's like, my mom is a labor and delivery nurse, Gail Hart, shout out. You can deliver a baby when you have HIV, but when you start to breastfeed it, when you start like that's when you start to pass it. Like you can have HIV and deliver a child that does not have HIV, right? Which is a common misconception because I right. assume that you're passing blood and that it would be yeah. a thing but it's I think the chances are surprisingly small don't quote me on that but like no it's Pepsi let's all agree it's no no we yeah. agree but what you're meant to believe if going with the themes of pop oh, culture yeah, yeah. is that it's AIDS like I always thought it was AIDS until I did research on yeah. it because I love this movie but alright Maga you have any more questions I do but I think we gotta get to the rating right I mean it's <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that we might do a part two I guess eventually same I mean we can do we can, do we can do an extra credits where we just break down all the shit that got cut yeah because yeah. there's I have a lot more but it's, I think we gotta get to the ratings, man. Well, I'll be back MLK weekend. We can do it. All right, All right let's do cool. it. All he right. was not featured in the movie. I'm just pointing <laughs> no, out. No, he ended up I on wish. the cutting room floor. Yeah. But I think for good reason. I think we can all yeah. announce that. 
All right, um, so. Mugs, what's your rating? All right, so let's get into uh, our ratings for this movie. Mugga, how much would you pay to watch Forrest Gump? So I'm going to make this quick. I know we always talk about if it's a movie on a Saturday, I'm li- this is a movie I will watch whenever someone wants to watch it. I purposely make it a point to watch it. I have to give it a 20. I, I have to. Yes. Like, I love this movie a lot. It's one of my favorites. It never gets old. I think it's gotten better as it's aged. So yeah, $20 for me. Jason, how about you? How much are you paying? Even apart from some of the mistakes, like chronologically, with some of the events, I, I think I'm going to agree with Muggs. I think this is going to be my first $20 rating. I really enjoy the movie. It's one of those when you're hungover on a Sunday and it comes on TVS, you're just like, I got to sit here and finish the movie. Another big thing, this is a little fun fact before I, I close out my part, is that did you guys know that Gary Sinise really does play in a band called the yes. Lieutenant ba- the Lieutenant I've, Dan Band and goes that. to like USO shows. <laughs> no, he got an and, award and for how much he does for veterans. He and also he plays started for a foundation and all yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah. So for, just a little fun fact: the Lieutenant yeah. Dan Band. If you ever see it around, I'm giving you a 25 now, Karen, because of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'll give it a 20. Cool. Holly, how much would you pay? Okay, so this is going to be a surprise to no one, but I would give it in 1994 $20, which in 2008, 20 to 2018 would correlate to $33.82. Wow, it's hashtag inflation. That's what I would do. Yeah. That's what I would do. Was it correlating in 2019? Because that's kind of what we're in, Holly. Hey, hey, six days into it. Wow, the bitchiness is real. Yo, you're so 2000 and late, it's not even funny. Oh, oh no. Haters. I try to come out with a fun fact and look at how it gets responded. It's ridiculous. Welcome to the club. Uh, TJ, <laughs> how much would you pay? So uh, originally, like I said at the very beginning, when I first saw this film, I was not a fan. Uh, I think a lot of the imagery, a lot of the um, themes kind of went over my head, but I rewatched it and man, this is a good movie. Despite all of the things that we kind of talked about, um, the errors and stuff like that, this is a good movie and I would pay $20 for this movie. Man, I you know, I'm just going to say right now, I wish a lot of the stuff we talked about didn't get cut out so a lot of the people listening could uh, understand where I'm coming from. Um, this is this is a phenomenal film, but it's not a movie that I, I just watch over and over and over. I didn't see this movie until I was in college, whatever. But it, it's a great movie, but I feel like there are certain things about it that I, I, I would I would pay I would pay 15 to see this movie. Um, so you're not going to give it the perfect rating on yeah, across like, the board. I, huh? I can't. I, so close. Yeah, I can't give it. I, I think it's because because it's 2019 now. I think it's because it's 2019 now. And you're looking at it the lens and, of 2019. And because you're you're analyzing it, not necessarily like the quality of the film because the quality of the film is great, but I feel like there are certain messages being sent by this film that are not okay or the way things are depicted are not 100% okay. Look, I'm just going to say it up front. You know, the elimination of pretty much the entire civil rights movement of, of the middle of the century well, you, we, almost eradicated. Yeah, we talked about this. If this film was to be released tomorrow, would it be a success? And unfortunately, you know, as a, there's no way yeah. I, can, I can avoid that. No, but if this movie was released tomorrow, if it was released yeah, in theaters tomorrow, yeah, do you think it would be a success? Hell no. Exactly. Like, nobody would go see it. And, and I'm not going to take away from the quality of the film, the, the acting is great, etc. But I, I find a real problem with kind of the, the pandering to, to the baby boomer generation, as well as, you know, the World War II generation, greatest generation, not wanting to so divide people that it, it almost comes off as, you know, you kind of have to question it. It's just like, they, they really didn't want to, they really wanted to walk the line of wanting to bring things up without um, offending people. 
you know, that that kind of makes me raise an eyebrow. The fact that Tom Hanks is essentially a stand in, you know, at times for black culture's influence on American society, as well as the fact that he doesn't meet one famous African-American, despite us kind of having a huge footprint in American society during this time. Are are we so (laughs) offensive that you know, it might tilt the scale for people that love or dislike this film. I think I think this film is safe as it should be because it knows what it's trying to do. The camp is there, etc. But when you play it safe, it kind of questions like, well, what do you think is safe or not? Like, what do you really think is safe or not? Is equality harmful? Does that does that kind of sway people that way? So I, I really have to take a step back and look at. I guess not the movie itself, but kind of the messaging it's kind of it's kind of getting out there the movie takes such a huge it takes a huge effort in being like non-political that it has unfortunately inadvertently become political and that's that that's not like i i know it's a movie and i know i'm gonna get some people listening saying you're looking too much into this you're looking too much into this then why the hell did i why the hell were we taking english you know four years in high school if we're not supposed to analyze things you know like this is what we're here to do four years in college and this is yeah and this is kind of what i see I look at it as the omission of certain things. I, I'm not questioning that they were omitted. I'm questioning, you know, what specifically yeah, what specifically was omitted and why. I'ma give this I'ma give this a fifteen. It's a great film, but I do think Which in like today's currency would be, you know, <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Like 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 I said, so in like, effect. Look, anybody listening might say, like, oh, you're just being a dick, you don't like this movie. I, I like this movie. Yeah, a and lot. you're looking at it from a woke lens. And I yeah. think there's certainly like it's it's like looking back and thinking of the things that you used to do when you were a kid and like being like, Wow, that would really not be accepted right now. Like right. we were talking about the use of like certain words and and just like certain things and like playground antics and it just it wouldn't fly now right yeah and i and i look at it this way it's just like i'm i'm looking at it through the lens of society today but i'm also looking at it for myself right because i i forgot about the plot of this movie and like i i noticed very quickly you know aside from a few offhand characters in bubba's immediate family like there are specific things missing the only time he interacts with black society is when he goes to the black panther party and it's like I'm, I'm just gonna say like it's offensive the way that whole sequence is portrayed because you have dude just talking to air yeah and i think when you do that you're, you're the only instance of the you're civil rights movement. stereotypes yeah yeah it's a it's a stereotype that you know we as black people just shout into the distance and don't do anything so i'm gonna give this movie a 15 and yeah my apologies but yeah Mugga, what are we what are we paying to watch for? Is so this is our highest rating film. Then it gives us a nineteen overall to go. Yes. Wow, nineteen. Okay, not perfect. It's nineteen. But I mean, in nineteen ninety four money, it'd be like thirty dollars. Oh, now. there it is. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> All right. So, uh, anything else anybody want to say before we close? There's out? There's the main things that I think people want us to talk about. Holly's wearing a blue shirt. I, we know every time he changes age, he's got a blue plaid shirt on. His eyes are closed in every photo. He never takes his eye out the paint. I thought I thought we touched on a lot of stuff, but I think we should do an extra credits on some other things that we should focus yeah, on. Yeah, there's but, a ton in this yeah. movie. You guys could definitely We could go for four hours talking about this movie. Yeah. But so yeah. yeah, so um, you know, once again, apologies about any sort of uh, technical difficulties that we had during this episode. Um, be on the lookout for an extra credits episode down the road where we kinda kinda have the discussions that got cut out of this episode. Um, so we're paying $19 to watch Forrest Gump. 
Mugga, who is Tom Cruise playing in this movie? He has to be Gary Sinise's character, Lieutenant yeah. Dan. Okay. Has to be. So he can't run anymore? Yeah, exactly. Okay. This is he has to lose his legs, right? so he yeah. can't run. All right, Jason, who's uh, Tom Cruise playing? That's tough. I mean, Mugga kind of stole mine. That's why I asked it. But Gary Sinise, I think he has to be Gary Sinise. Okay, I am going to say, I'm just going to say, <laughs> he's got to play fucking Forrest Gump. He runs. He's got Because he's always running. I think I think he would even be a better casting choice than Sally Field, so I'm going to say Mama Gump. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I'm going to agree with the guys. I think uh, Lieutenant Dan uh, is where I see him fitting in this film. All right, cool. So uh, we're signing off, and in the words of Tom Cruise... Fuck you, Sally. Not the no, not no, that no. You not, said it. Not, you said it. it. You said it. How dare you? Not no, no. You said it. We we love you, Sally Field. We love, love you, you, Sally Field. We stand you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Twenty Dollar Ticket. Follow us on Instagram at Twenty Dollar Ticket and leave your ticket price about the movies we've reviewed. If you have any comments or suggestions, send them to $20ticket at gmail.com. That's two zero, the numbers, $20ticket at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts and thank you for listening.